This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader on the Makery Network. My guest today is my friend Craig Lockwood. Craig Lockwood is a web developer. He is a business owner. He and his wife Amy and their beautiful children live in France where he has a company called Chop Knives. He makes beautiful knives, and you know that. He's also, I'm his co-host with Mareko Mamasi on the number one knife-related podcast on the planet, Number one. Number one. Don't forget it. And he's the big cheese of the Makery Network. The number, the getting to be the number one uh, avenue for maker related podcasts. So the big cheese is here. The boss is here. I got to be on my P. I got to watch my P's and Q's (laughs) and my toes. Craig Lockwood, how are you? I'm very good. This is really weird. I'm sitting here. I haven't got my fingers on any buttons waiting to press any jingles. I'm just sitting here. I've got a beer in my hand. It's just going to be a nice chat. I'm oh, yeah, looking forward to it. I got to tell you, Craig, and, and the joke was going to be like, I feel like I haven't, I've talked to you yesterday, which is the, the case. One of the things I think about you, I've known you now for a while. We've never actually, the, phys, the funny thing is we've never actually physically met. We've been we got talking. Very cl- we got very close at one point, but we <laughs> we didn't actually make it. Yeah, <laughs> we, we didn't actually make it. You didn't make it. You didn't get on the plane. That's fine. The funny thing is, is... Now that we've talked, we've been talking now for almost two years, and um, it's been a pleasure for me. I, I, I include you as one of my close friends, and it's just, it, it's, it's really great. One of the things I think about you when I think about the breadth of your, the information and the things that you've done is I feel like you've been short shrifted. And this is the reason you started out doing all these incredible web developing businesses, a n- number of them successful with you and your wife. And there's this, attitude that you just kind of unplugged everything and decided to be a knife maker. Now, my personal opinion is all the things that you've done, all the web companies that you've done in Wales and the, and, the, and all the web companies that you've done and the, the media directors and all the things that you've done, I think that the knife making is a complete extension of the person that you are. Mm. I don't think that there's a difference. Never given it that much thought. Because here's what I was, because I think about, I try to be as, I try to think about, I've been thinking about this for a while. Mm. And I think that that becomes, I think it's very easy for the average person to say, oh, he just got sick of working on a computer and now he's making knives. And I don't think there's any difference from what you used to do, which is you see a market, you see a need for something. You, you devise with a lot of hard work and energy how to get that product to the market, and then you execute and deliver that mark that that item every single time. So I don't think with regards to you, I know that you created that uh, uh, co-work space in Wales and and all the companies that you've done with your wife. And I think that this is an this is a complete. Um, extra part of just the person that you are, which is a compulsive person. Definitely compulsive, without a doubt. Um, But I think all those things have led to, um, you know, making knives now. And I I, I still rely on a lot of those skills all of the time. And I think I'm a a different knife maker to a lot of other people. Um, A lot of mine is sort of tech-focused with regards to the design of it and the sort of the back end of stuff. Um, 
and you know with without you know a grounding in sort of web development and you know iphone apps all that kind of thing there's no way I, i'd have this, this this skill because it's something i didn't learn in school at all at all i mean you know i'm pretty old we didn't really do much on computers in school right. so i've just sort of fallen into um like careers really and it's it's sort of guided me that way yeah see but it's not falling into these careers your your the way you approach them all comes from a very primal place of i can do this i'm going to figure out how i'm going to do it and i'm going to execute like i've always felt like cooking and making sculpture making knives there's no difference it's 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 taking ingredients and using proper technique and giving it to someone and i feel like the same could be said to you about you and i just don't want you to think that i feel and i think that it's it's like i said i think it's 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 unfortunate that people think that you just like, I'm tired of this computer shit. I'm going to pull my hair out. I'm going to make knives for a living. Because <laughs> it comes from the same place. And it, can't, it comes from a place of success. I'm a, I'm a massive believer that anybody can... I, I know some people are born with certain skills. Right. But I think anybody can acquire these skills. And I'm a massive believer in sort of education and learning. So I certainly wasn't in school. I, I didn't do well at school at all. Um, but, you know, I was sort of... 15 16 when when the internet sort of became something that people could use at home right um and that to me just opened my eyes that was wow i can learn all of this stuff and i still use the internet to this day always learning and you know i'm always on youtube but i'm not i'm not looking at you know vlogs and you know the latest fashions that kind of thing i'm always learning something and mm. my wife will say something to me like what the hell are you watching and it could be you know how to be better at ping pong. I don't play ping pong, but it, it could be something mm. like that. And she'll say, why are you doing that? I said, well, I just like to know. And I think I'm, I'm curious. I think I think that's the main thing. I'm curious. But liking and, to know and and people and, and then act, executing the knowledge are two different things. But I think anybody can. I think it, it bugs me when I hear people say things like, oh, I, I don't cook. I can't cook. It's like... That's not a skill anybody is born with. Anybody can do that. It just takes a bit of care and attention. And I think that's what these people lack is care and attention. They can cook. Anybody can cook. Of course they can. But some people then would maybe, that's part of their personality. Oh, I'm the person who I can't cook. Right. You know, when the fire alarm goes off, that's when I know the food's ready. You know, and it's part of their shtick. It's part of the, you know who they are. Um, and I find that strange because I want to know everything. Literally everything I want to know about the most obscure things, and I know I'm never going to be an expert at everything, um, but I'd like to think that I, you know, I'm knowledgeable about most things in some way. But there's a bravery to what you do because what you're doing is you're learning these things and then and then you're trying to implement them. You know, the, just looking at your just in talking about your knives, I see that you see things and then you want to keep adapting and then evolving and evolving. And buying, you know, equipment, the laser you just got, and, the, and being able to kind of change the way you do things. There's a bravery in that in the sense of, like, you can watch these YouTube videos and, and learn these things. But unless you're saying to yourself, I can do this, I'm going to do this, that's two different things. I know I knew guys who were just, like, they'd learn all this stuff, but they were, they were just too afraid to, to, to make the, the leap. And I feel like it has to do with your background in web development and being able to say, all right, this is how it's going to work. Or, 
all right, well, this is this isn't going to work. You know, I read the article about uh, that space that you and your wife had where, you know, you had everything squared away. It was the, uh, I don't know, it was, I don't remember the name. It was a five the, the something. The Founders Hub. The Founders Hub. And it was kind of yes, like yes. in the United States is very similar to, there's this thing called a WeWork where it's a shared space. Yeah, where people very similar, can, yeah. Uh, offices and you had this whole building and it was great and you had everything squared away and you had all these people but the building was like a historic building and all the and they couldn't give you enough uh, fiber optics or, or Wi-Fi or whatever so people could actually use the place and it and it was it was it must have been incredibly frustrating because you had worked out all the details and these outer forces were making it uh, making you unable to capture the success of this business. Yeah. Well, that was a really weird thing. So if we sort of step back a bit from that. So um, many things, but, you know, becoming a sort of, as a kid, I was always into, you know, tech. And, you know, in the mid 80s, you know, we had, you know, TV, everybody started having multiple TVs in the house and video recorders, that kind of thing. Um, I was the, I was the youngest of two brothers. I now have a much younger brother as well, but Hmm. I'll talk about that later. He was born when I was 16. But I was the youngest, so there was I had an older sister, an older brother than myself. Um, but it was always me. If you know, if if a family member had a video recorder, it would always be, oh, Craig, can you come around and, and set this up for us, or little change the clock, you know, program the video recorder, all you know, the simple stuff. But I really got into it, and that was sort of my thing. And I think, you know, at a very sort of you know seven or eight, I was doing this for you know everybody in the neighbourhood, that kind of thing, and taken apart old TVs, video recorders, that kind of thing. My brother, my older brother, had a, had a computer. When I, I must have been about seven, I think, when um, we had our first sort of computer in the house. And it was a, a ZX Spectrum, which which is a British thing. Very, very basic. And, and actually, basic was the programming language that you would use for it. And, and I'd make, like, silly games. You know, I'd, I'd hmm. say to my brother, you know, press the R button, see what happens. And he would, and he would say, like, you know, Gary Smells would come up on the screen. You know, these silly little things. Yeah. But as a kid, you just say, like, wow. And this opened up sort of world of creativity, really, where I could make something, but totally without anybody else's influence, you know, and, you know, from quite a young age. And I think with, you know, getting into sort of tech then and, and sort of as the web became bigger, it, it's always a case of you can't really stand still because things are moving so, so fast. So that I think that sort of ability to be able to learn quickly sort of stem from that. And now I'm making knives, which is obviously a very traditional thing. And there's there's certainly a place for, you know, somebody hand forging something and doing something that they've done, you know, for hundreds, thousands of years. There's certainly a place for that. But that's not what I do. Um, and, I, I, you know, I want, I want to use the latest technology to make something the best that I can. And I think that's just ingrained into me. Just, you know, there's always something new that, that would help me, you know, technology-wise that will help me make things better. Do you think... Now, stepping back to when you were seven, do you think that part of it was the encouragement that your family gave you? It sounds to me like if there was a problem, a computer problem or a recording problem, they said, get Craig. So that ability, that 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 even if it's, you know, un, um, unconscious, there's a support and a belief in you that gives you the satisfaction of saying, hey, they're coming to me for this because they know that I can do it. I believe that I believe that most makers I think all makers are, have a, a similar background where they're doing things because either they're finding some satisfaction or they had the the backing of a family member or people believed in them 
And mm. I'm convinced that every single one is almost the same story. And that's what kind of this podcast is like. It's turned into me trying to, it's almost like in my stupid head, I'm trying to f- pinpoint why this person behaves this way. Because I don't really care about the bandsaws and all that shit. I want to <laughs> know why you are the person that you are. And I, I see you as someone that is very successful. And I, I wonder if it, where that successful attitude comes from. Well, I was always like the weird kid. I was never successful in school with regards to, you know, being cool, being with, you know, with the trendy kids or the sporty kids. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> I was I was just into music, like, in, in a stupidly, you know, crazy way. That's all I thought about. Right. Any money that I had would, would go off to buy more music. And I had this music collection in my bedroom. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd go to bed early and just lie in the dark with headphones on, just listening to music. And it used to bug me that people wouldn't, you know, they'd be listening to music, but I'd be like, you're not hearing it. You know, you, you need to be quiet. You need to, you know, I, I used to be really intense as a kid. Um, and, you know, that meant I wasn't part of, you know, the, as I said, the cool kids or the sporty kids. Um, but I wasn't necessarily the unpopular kid. I sort of, I learned quite early to, to sort of float between all these groups. So I could get on with everybody, but I never really fit into any of them. Hmm. And I think, I think part of that was, so the school that I went to was, was miles away from where I live. It, it was sort of a 40 minute walk each morning and 40 minute back. Um, so the, 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 the way things work in the UK, you have a junior school and a high school. And you, you, you change at, I think, 12 years old, you go up to high school. So my junior school was very sort of music and drama focused. It wasn't a, a musical drama school, but it was just the right. teachers there were very, you know, it was very much focused on that. Um, but the local high school wasn't at all. It was, you know, it, it, it wasn't a very good area we lived anyway, and the local high school wasn't too good. So my parents said, well, why don't you go to this other school, which is quite music focused? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, so I did. But what that meant was I didn't have any um, outside of school time. I didn't see anybody. So everybody would be going into school and talking about what they did last night or getting together. And I'm like, oh, I was, I was on the outside all of the time, you know? Hmm. Um, so so that, I think that's where I became really sort of like super obsessed about things. So at the time it was music. Super, super obsessed. Like, and I give still, me an example of what's, what's your imp- impression of what's, – what's obsession to you? Every every spare minute was was music. Um, when I was in class, I'd be you know, you know, I'd write music as a kid as well. You know, when hmm. I, you know, almost like poetry, and I'd put music to it, that kind of thing. You know, really super intense, proper sad, sad, sad kid. But um, you know, that was my only focus. And you know, I I didn't have the way with all the things. Oh, I want to be a musician when I'm older. I didn't I didn't think that way. It was just like this is all I'm into, and I didn't really give any consideration to a career. Um, but I, yeah, I find that with everything that I do, I get this, this intense sort of tunnel vision on what I'm doing. Um, but then, you know, in the, in, in the distance, I'll see this new silvery, shiny thing and I'll be, oh, and that, that's my new focus, you know, completely. But there are some things that have stuck around such as, such as music and, and, that, you know, and sort of tech, that kind of thing. So, so yeah, so I left school with, um, not having a clue what I was doing at sort of 16. Um, my parents, we... My my mum and dad they'd always like fostered kids as I was growing up as well so there was always lots of kids around the house really so I think so I think that was one of the reasons I wanted to lock myself up in my room listening to music maybe just, just Where, to get a bit of peace how many people would how many foster killed children would be there around oh, oh at, at a time there'd only be sort of two or three but like but over the, of, over the course of your childhood 
Oh, dozens, 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 uh, dozens. And how, long of a t- how long of a long term? I mean, there was a point where my mother had a newborn baby. The day they were born, they were taken from their mother. I don't know what the circumstances were, and we had them until they were, I think, six or seven months old. Oh my god! And I'm thinking, yeah, and I'm thinking back now, having my own children, thinking, imagine them being taken away, like from my mother. You know, she'd raised them from since day one. Why? Um, why would your mom offer to do this? If you, I mean, it I sounds crazy it's, for me to say that, but it's just like, it's it's such an intense, it's a it's such an intense thing to ch- take newborn babies and, and foster them. It's an incredible thing. What is this religious, or was it? What was her her guiding light in terms of doing this? I'm not quite sure. She she worked at the local school, so not the school I went to. She worked she worked at the local school, um, and kids were always just a part of you know what, what she did growing up um, as like a nursery nurse, all that kind of stuff. But when that happened with these with these two babies taken away, that's when she decided to have another baby. So I think she was forty, maybe forty one at the time, which which was you know it's quite late to have a baby. So that's when they had my little brother Jack. So I'd gone from being the youngest of three to then being um, not the youngest, and I was sixteen. So this was the point where you know you sort of leave high school and you decide then whether you're going to college and then on to university that kind of thing. And I didn't. It just sort of hit me. It just it just came up. It was like, oh, it's September, you're leaving school, and I'm like, oh shit, what am I gonna do? I hadn't given any thought to what I was gonna do. And my, my grades weren't that good. I was, you know, I was just sort of coasting through. Um, so there, there was a, there was a few kids that I was quite friendly with, and and they were they were doing like an engineering course, like an an apprenticeship. So you you go into a workplace for four days of the week, and one day of the week you'd go to college. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll I'll do that. Just, again, hadn't given any thought. Did that for maybe four or five months. Um, and this is when I'm sort of 16, 17, maybe sort of 17, turning 18. Um, then sort of discovered, you know, girls and yeah. beer and going out and that kind of thing. And, we, and myself and my mates, we just didn't go to college on the Friday when we were meant to. Like for months, we just got away with it. We, You know, we'd roll into work and keep our heads down. Um, eventually, it all, they, they found out, and they were like, ah, you kicked off the course. And I was like, oh, shit, what the hell am I going to do? So I'm sort of 18, um, what, 17, 18, um, kicked out of college. Um, and I, and Wait, I didn't why know what did I they want. kick you out of college? For drinking? No, for not to going to college on the Friday. So it was a, we were meant to be in the workplace Monday to Thursday, and then college so on the Friday. skipping a couple days? Oh, we never went. Oh, I think we right. went maybe once or twice. It was <laughs> yeah. like, this isn't for us. Yeah, you, know? We, you know, you think you know everything. And it, yeah. you know, if I saw that kid now, I'd be like, what an ass. But um, so, yeah, I, I was left. I was like, what the hell am I going to do now? So I, I was always in, interested in computers and so on. And um, a local company, um, they were an ISP, so an internet service provider. And at the time, it was like, yeah, you, you didn't get them. This was just before people started to sort of get in AOL discs, you know, people getting the right, intent in the right. house. So anyway, there was a job there, and um, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go for this. You know, I'm into tech, I'm into computers, I'll, I'll do this. Didn't quite understand what the internet was, really. I knew businesses were using it, that kind of thing. And this was a time when, you know, businesses were having like a leased line, which would give you like half a meg download speed. At like five hundred yeah, pounds. Yeah, you have to. Excuse me, I don't know what any of that means, but fine. Go ahead. I mean, we're on probably 60, 70 meg now, okay. and at the time they were they were on half a meg for like five hundred pounds a month. It's crazy. 
Um, and I was like, all oh, right, okay. So I, I worked, I started in accounts, strangely enough. <laughs> I knew nothing about accounts, but I was just like, I need to get into this company because it's the internet, it looks like it's going to be something. So I started working in accounts, um, got friendly with the web developers, then started doing a bit of web development with them. Um, and it, yeah, it was going really well. I was really enjoying it. And this, as it, this was the time where people started getting AOL discs at home and you know, using dial-up. And I don't know if you remember with dial-up, but you'd, you'd pay your sort of phone bill but you'd also pay an extra cost yeah. to an internet provider, like a penny an hour or whatever it was. Um, so Frontier then got bought out by a bigger company. Um, and again, I was left, what am I going to do? So I had a little bit of money saved. So I set up an internet cafe, which, which again now sounds crazy, an internet cafe. But at the time, people didn't have computers in their house. They didn't have the internet. And I was just, all right, I'm going to set up a, uh, a cafe. So I did. Um, that went really well, so I set up a second one. Wait, so how did you, in- you you made a deal with the owners of the cafe, or no? It was it was an empty building, so oh. I, I I got a lease really cheap. And then um, how did you get um, the computers? Oh, I you know I used to be like make computers. You know, I'd buy bits and I'd put computers together. And, and so all for your first internet cafe, how many computers did you have? Eight. We had Holy eight stations shit. there. Yeah, and you they saved also- a lot of money up. Well, they, I mean, it's cheap. If you if you make your own computer, it's cheap. Oh, and they didn't have to... Hear you that, know, listeners of the podcast. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> they didn't have to be, you know, high-spec Macs like we'd have these days. They, you know, they just needed to go online. That's all, that's all they were for. Um, that went really well. Um, so then I was, you know, making computers and selling them as well um, from the Internet Cafe. Then we opened up a second one. So then we had two. Um, all going really, really well. Um, and then I thought, well, if people are coming here to use the Internet, why don't I sell them the Internet at home? So just like you get your AOL disk um, to, to go on the internet and AOL would get their penny an hour, um, I set up an ISP of my own. So it was called Half Circle. And we did. We had you know tens of thousands of people going home and installing the, the software and they'd go online and I'd get paid sort of a penny an hour for them being online. Holy and shit. How many, how many of those disks did you have out in the world? Oh, or in the UK? Thousands, thousands and thousands. We, we were giving them away free with magazines as well. So we did a deal with a publisher of a, like a... The computer magazine saying, you know, can you stick the disc on the front? We'd pay them and, and, and that kind of thing. So it, it grew very, very quickly. Um, but it, but this was the time when even like supermarkets then started selling uh, PCs, you know, like cheap PCs. And he's like, well, I'm doing all this work and now people can get them maybe even cheaper at a supermarket, you know? And I was thinking, this isn't going to last too long. But very, very fortunate. The company who I used to work for, which was Frontier, which was the ISP, as I said, they were bought out by a bigger company. They then approached me and said, look, can we buy your internet customers from you? Can we sort of acquire you? Look at, look at this. Okay. And I'm sort of t- early 20s. Um, and I could see that, you know, this isn't going to last long because in the UK, the whole internet business is sewn up by British Telecom, which is the, you know, the main sort of provider right. of all phone phone lines, that kind of thing. Um so it was quite clear they were going to dominate. There's no way it's going to be a big, big company. So I sold. I sold. I sold the company um, in my sort of early twenties, and I was lost then for about maybe two or three years, just like. And it was enough what... money for you to just kind of like lay back a little bit, or for a little. It wasn't a huge amount, but yeah, it, yeah. But I mean, it, it was... was enough that you were like, all right, well, now what am I going to do? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I did all sorts of things. And, you know, I had friends that were, at the time, they were they were selling cars and they were making lots of money. I was like, oh, I might even try this. So I tried that for a while. Um, and I was always doing the sort of web development stuff on the side as well. Um, and, and, you know, that was probably paying more than anything else that I was doing. 
and I sort of specialised in um, developing ads, like serving online ads. So, you know, they're, they're very common now, but back in sort of, you know, mid-90s to 2000, online ads, were they were quite rare, um, and especially on mobiles, because people didn't have, you know, the internet on, on mobiles until the iPhone came along, really, which was, what, 2006. So, yeah, so it was quite niche what I was doing. So I did some work, like, with the BBC and some, like, huge agencies, and it was all going quite well. But I just, I don't know, I just didn't enjoy it. You know, I was on my own most of the time. I wasn't working with a company. This was literally just me as a freelancer. So then, you know, I was getting more and more into music as well, like playing music in my spare time. And then, I don't know how it happened, but a job came up in, in radio um, at, a, at a radio station. And I didn't even know what the job was. And I knew they'd be, it'd be something to do with ads and it'd be, you know, they were starting to go online and stuff. So, so I went along and I, and I got the job. Doing what? And it was, well, it was, it was a weird thing. So basically I was missold the jobs. What they wanted me to do was go out and sell ads. <laughs> you know, that's what I oh, ended geez. up doing. I was, that's not why I was, I was promised. But, um, but I did meet my wife there. Oh, really? My wife was working at the radio station. So I'm glad that that happened. Um, but yeah, I didn't last there very long because I, I soon realized that, you know, selling, you know, to businesses, ad space is not what I want to be doing. You know, it's not very creative. It's it's it it, it didn't have the lure of radio, which you know to me was glamorous. And, and they're was, scum. The people that, who sell ads are scum. Exactly, exactly. And to me, you know, radio had a certain glamour to it. And when I got there, it was like ah, it was in the back of a church. It was it was it was the least glamorous thing ever. And I still remember my I I didn't get on with the station manager there because she didn't have a clue what she was doing and. You know, I was young and cocky, and I thought, you know, everybody should do it a certain way. And I remember the day I was leaving, she didn't come into the office, you know, to say goodbye or anything. So I remember being a radio station, we had lots of bottles of champagne upstairs uh -oh. like with, for comp competition winners and all that kind of thing. So, so I remember I had to go back in on the last day, take the car back and, and all that kind of thing. And I thought, well, I'm not doing any work today. The, the boss hasn't even come in to say goodbye. So I remember like 10 in the morning, putting my feet up on the desk, cracking open a bottle of champagne. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so Amy, my wife, was coming to pick me up then because obviously I was, you know, leaving the car there. It was a, it was a work car. And I, I remember she arrived about five o'clock and I'm just like pissed. You got bombed? I was, you got, you've been I was throwing the corks. I was throwing corks at everybody in the office. I was... I was what, what gave you the balls to? How did you do that? You just like you I just, just showed up and think I'm gonna start drinking at ten, and then all of a I sudden, I just didn't care. I knew I was leaving. I just didn't care whatsoever. So yeah, it was it was all quite strange. So anyway, got back into sort of web development, um, and I was doing that for a number of years. You know, quite successfully. Not particularly happy about it because you know it was a solitary thing and it wasn't really my thing. But then. Everything changed in 2006 when the iPhone was introduced yeah. um, because, you know, there's, there's this new platform and everybody was going to have the internet in their pocket. So at the time when the iPhone was introduced, you couldn't, um, there was no app store. You had the apps that were on the phone and that was it. It was only the year later when they introduced 3G and, and the 3G iPhone that you could, they actually launched an app store. And I was like, ooh, an app store you know, maybe I could sell stuff on an app store because it's worldwide. Everybody has this in their pocket and there's no restrictions by territory or wherever it may be. Um, so I did. I wrote a few apps ready for launch day in, I think it was 2007 when the app store launched. And I had a number of apps. Um, I jumped onto like football clubs, all that kind of thing first, you know, and 
whole idea was, you know, we could put up their league tables, the latest football news, and all this stuff would just be taken from their web. Like the most simple of apps, like nobody'd buy them these days. But back back in the day, everybody's buying apps because right. it's a new thing. So it was only just like scraping news off their websites, and you know, if you're a fan of a certain football club, you get all the details. And they sold like hotcakes. They it was just like crazy for months and it was like even like like number one in malaysia and all these like crazy crazy places but um that lasted for about seven or eight months before the the premier league decided oh all right okay there's people making money here out of our football clubs and they had all these official versions um but i also did the uh, so the glastonbury festival is a massive festival in the uk like a music festival um, and I and I did an app for that, and the whole idea was I knew after going to Glastonbury myself that there's no service there, so all I did basically was take the, the website with the schedule of all the different stages and all the bands, and put it into the app so it didn't need a connection. That's oh, that's all it was, simple as that, and that just went crazy and sold by like by the bucket load, and I was like, oh, okay, there's something in this. So that's what I was doing for the next. Probably eight or nine years, um, sort of web development and, and iPhone apps. Um, it then got to the point where I started running events um, for other developers and designers because, like any other profession, there's a community there. And particularly when there's you know tech focused people, they're always on online, and yet you know you're going to find a community of people. So yeah, I started doing events for designers and developers. Um, and and they they were quite successful, so everything was going like really sweet, really sweet. I you know I'd met the girl of my dreams, and I had this this job that was going really well, and everything's you know tickety boo. Then what? Um, something you're about to say, you're about to say something happened. No, no. Huh. So this is this is all the bubbles. You can imagine a bottle of champagne now, and all the bubbles are building up and building up and building up. And I'm like, okay, so what next? So I was working from home at the time. Um, and I was doing all this from home and, you know, arranging these events and so on. And, you know, big events. So, like, when the web turned 25, we did the official, you know, event for it. You know, the W3C, which is the World Wide Web Consortium. Um, we did their official event and it was a huge thing. And we probably did about a dozen events, you know, up to sort of 1,200 people in big theatres. It was, it, it, was, it was quite crazy. And um, working from home... And it was that thing where I knew people working together in offices, like open open office spaces, where you know, as you just like we work that kind of thing. I knew that was happening, but there was there was none in my town, in my city, which was Cardiff. So I put up a blog post saying, "Wouldn't it be great if there was a a place where people could come and work together? They could make things. It doesn't have to be just web stuff. It's just creatives can get together and you know see what happens." And People sort of shared this blog post, and it went crazy. It was like it was like trending on Twitter and so on. Just this this blog post—that's all it was. And within forty-eight hours, I had uh, Microsoft, Squarespace, and Mailchimp on the phone. Each of them saying, "We'll give you ten grand. Just go and do it." And I'm like, "Whoa!" And I, I didn't say I wanted to run one or do one. I just wanted—I wanted there to be one. Um, and they were like, "No, you you go and do it. You, you know, here's some money." So we did. We we found a space in the in the city centre, um, you know. And the whole deal was that we we it, it, you know it's for a year, and they'll be we have various rooms in this space, you know, sponsored by Microsoft, Squarespace, and Mailchimp, and they can send members of staff to give workshops and all that kind of thing, and basically try and sell their product, but you know, in, a, in an educational way. 
So we did. Um, we actually kept it open for two years, even though we were only contracted for one. Um, we had the lease for two years, so we kept it for two. By the end of the two years, um, we'd been robbed a few times. We couldn't get a decent connection to the building, as, as you mentioned earlier. So we closed it. But I was just really proud of that space. It was called Founders Hub. It was right in the middle of the city centre. Really, really proud of it because you know, a number of businesses sort of spawned from there that have employed dozens and dozens of people, gone on to be you know huge companies. So it was brilliant because we were we were you know we weren't just you know opening the door, letting people in. We were running workshops there and events and all that kind of thing. Um, and it was brilliant, and it gave me just time to sort of play. So you know, I went back to sort of you know electronics. I was you know falling more and more out of favour with with web development. Um, just because it, it, it's changed so much to what it used to be. Huh. So I was, I was falling more and more out of favor and getting more into sort of web tech. So I'd, I'd, I'd make things, I mean, just trying to think. We, we had a, uh, a like a budget, uh, a budgie, you know, the budgie birds. Yeah, like a We had one of them in, in, in the workspace. So I, I made a system so he could tweet like in real life. So he had a Twitter account and if he drunk from his water, he'd tweet, I'm drinking water. If he looked in his oh, mirror, he'd say, yeah, look at you. So it, it was just, I was just having fun basically and just making all these crazy things like, uh, yeah, Wi-Fi lights and all that before they were sort of, you know, ubiquitous as they are now so yeah just doing all these crazy things um but then a friend of ours who you know he knew we were doing events and all that kind of thing a very well respected designer you know known all over the world um he was being his company was being bought out by a massive company a huge multinational company um but part of his company was it was a publishing company and they published books for uh designers and developers very sort of well respected books that, you know, the industry, they were the sort of standards within the industry. Um, and that meant that they were just going to go, those books were going to disappear. You know, they weren't going to be printing anymore as part of the deal. They, they wanted to fold up this publishing company. So my wife and I, we were like, well, we should buy this because, you know, we do events. We're sort of known within the industry now. Um, we should we should buy this. So we did. So we, we bought this, what we thought was a small company. We didn't realize that there was stock, you know, on the East Coast of America, West Coast of America, in Berlin, in the UK, with these distribution centers. It was this massive, massive deal. Um, and we, we'd just taken on too much. So I mentioned all these, you know, these, these bottles in a champagne bottle, right. these bubbles just all bubbling up, bubbling, bubbling up. We'd just taken on too much. And we were we were working sort of 14 hours a day, Um just getting this place ready to open as well, this founders hub, because it was um, it it was an old sort of commercial building, um, and you know I went in with my brother and my father with hammers. We knocked down walls and we we did all this stuff. We you know three months getting it ready to open, um, and when it did open with the events and we had like a beer license in the evening. We'd have you know tech talks and we'd be you know it would go on till all times. And quite often I'd be sleeping there at night just on a sofa, you know, because I've got to be back at seven in the morning. So it's now 2 a.m. I might as well just sleep here on the sofa. And that just happened way too much, but both for my, both me and my wife. And, you know, we weren't seeing each other enough. We were, we were just doing too much. Were you married so, at the time? Is, that, is this? This was. Right before? Well, we weren't. We, we got married just at the end. So just before the lease finished, we got married, actually. Yeah, just then. Um, but I'd say probably about six months before the lease ended, we were just like, this can't go on. We need to pare something down. And uh, we came to France on a two-week holiday to Amy's parents. They've they've got a, like a small place which they were renovating here in France. 
and I hadn't been before, so so we came and, and we loved it. It was you know the sun was shining. We forgot all our sort of troubles and worries and anything to do with work, and it was just great. And we were just like, we could do this, you know. And it was like, well, could we really? He said, yeah, we could. We could just we could just get rid of everything. We could come over here and you know do what we want to do. And it was you know that was just you know. We were thinking maybe we could. We, we certainly hadn't committed to anything. And at the time, I was still, you know, just making stuff, like electronic stuff. And, you know, there's there's talk of having like a like a gallery and having a show and all this. And it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a very different world to what I do now. Right. And um, one of the events that I did, uh, I think looking back just shows that I'd had enough of everything, was called Summer Camp. And the idea was we were going to take designers and developers into the woods um, and for three or four days, we'd do we'd make things like physical things with our hands, as opposed to you know on a screen. You know these were going to be atoms instead of right. bytes. That's what it was all about. And I loved it. So we had you know a lady there um, helping us with um, spoon carving. We did you know screen printing and all all these different things. You know cutting down trees and and it was great. And this place was um, called Forest and it was in West Wales and literally a forest. But yeah. they had this amazing camp set. A beautiful, beautiful place. And um, it changed me. And I came back and I was just like, man, I love that place. I you know I really love that place. And funnily enough, that's where we got married. Then just just a few months later. Um, By happenstance, or you made it? You made the decision to go there. We made the decision okay. to, for it to be there because, yeah, it, it was just perfect. It was perfect. Um, but there were round about that time. Um, I also attended an event called the the Do Lectures, and I've talked about this before on Knife Talk. That it, it changed the way I think about things. So um, there's a guy called David Hyatt who owns Hyatt Denim, which is a jeans company. Um, he used to own um, Howie's, which was another like, a clothing company, and so on completely run like the most ethically business ethically sound businesses ever and this guy's a genius he's like a marketing genius david he's become a friend now which you know which i'm really grateful for but um he runs this event called the do lectures it's just 100 people can go so you you, you it's crazy you need to apply to go to this event hmm. it, it's completely cut off it's in the middle of nowhere um and they have like the best speakers in the world and it it's all very inspirational, um, follow your dreams kind of stuff, you know, which, you know, too much of that can get to me. You know, I think, what the hell? Yeah. But it, 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 it did. I come away I come away from that event as a different person. And I'm like, I, we can't keep doing what we're doing. We're doing too much and there's no value in what we were doing, really. Personal so, value. So, yeah. Like personal, personal value. value. We were, we, yeah, we weren't feeling good about what we were doing. We, we right. were, you know, we, we, were, we were selling books or we were selling, you know, desk space. I was like, really? There's more to life than this. Um, and this was the time when I started making knives. So after the uh, the spoon carving, I went home and, you know, for the next three months I was down, you know, the biggest YouTube rabbit holes ever of spoon carving and carpentry and all this kind of stuff. And eventually I came across, it was a Walter Sorrells video. Um, so, you know, you, you know, you may be interested in this, that kind of YouTube thing. And it was a Walter Sorrell's video, so I watched that, and it was just, ah, okay, maybe I could make a knife. So, yeah, I made a knife at home, you know, a very poor, poor imitation of a knife. Um, but that was it. I was just, like, hooked. And this was during the time when we're like, I think we're probably going to move to France. Um, and, yeah, and that so was that. So that whole thing fit. I mean, it fit within the confines of you're already going to 
drop everything else and go to France, why not pick up a new hobby in, in this new place? Exactly. And it was that thing that I talked about earlier, this tunnel vision of it's the most important thing to me until it's not. And that's what sort of the tech world was. I was, you know, deeply entrenched in, you know, the politics of it all and the community and, and all this all this stuff. And, it, you know, it was turning sour sort of in front of my eyes. So this new shiny thing was in the corner. And I was like, oh, Jesus, this, this, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying this. You know, to me, there was no money in it. it. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, for a financial reason. It was just, a, I'm enjoying this and I need to enjoy myself more. May I stop you for a second and just say, sure. I'm seeing, incre- I mean, p- pardon me if I'm out of bounds here, but I'm seeing incredible parallels between you and these things and the way you were raised with your mother bringing in all these foster children. You know, I, I, I can't help but think that when you first told me that, I thought, I thought well, what can that feel like to have these other children? And then you're not getting all the attention from your mother. And, you know, anyway, you're the you're, you're at the time you were the youngest. So you were getting how all the, dare you, Jeffrey? How dare I'm you? I'm getting somewhere good, dude. I'm getting somewhere good here. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with because you. Because he's I'm joking. because she's as the young as the youngest, you're already getting uh, a little bit of resentment from your older brother and your sister because you're the baby and you're the you're the one that you're getting the most attention to and it only is because you're the youngest so you probably need more attention and then all of a sudden these foster children come in and your mother is 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 taking on these children and then she's giving them the nurturing uh, especially for newborns the nurturing and the and the love for them to, for their life and and then they're leaving and then there's another one and then and there's another one and I can't help but see the parallels between the way your mother is interacting with all of your chill, all these children. And please let me, let me, I mean, if, if I haven't told you that this is one of the most noble pursuits you could possibly do as a human being is to care for someone else. But I see that with you in terms of all these different things that you've been doing. There are these, there are these children that you're fostering and then, and then, you know, maybe it works and maybe it doesn't and you're onto something new. I, I find that there's incredible parallels. Maybe, maybe. Um, uh, maybe. A hundred percent. I think, I, th- I don't think it's much of a secret between, you know, my family and the people who know me that I'm always wanting to show them something. Look what I've made. Look what I've made. I Wanting sort of acceptance from them. Well, that's, you know? the, younger ch- that's the younger child. That's the, Quite, the narcissism yeah, probably of the younger is. children. Yes, yeah. And even to this day, I need to rein myself in sometimes because, you know, I'll do something. Like, hey, come have a look what I've done. She's like, I can't. Yeah, you're a man. You don't. You don't. You don't need me to see this. This is what the maker. This is the maker thing. And this is the maker. I do the same thing with my wife. I mean, all the yeah. time she's had it. You know, and that's that's the the narcissism that you know people who have to make something they always have to face. And being able to see that is the best. You know, otherwise mm. you turn into like, uh, you know, completely, you know, awful. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> So so where was I? We were um yes, we're like I think we want to move to France. Yeah. And we we we'd recently got married. Um I you know, I hadn't made any knives to sell. It was, you know, purely a hobby. So the idea was we were going to close Founders Hub when the lease had finished. We were going to move to France and we were going to keep the publishing company going. Um and 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 that, and that was that. That's what I do, you know, for the rest of my days. Run this publishing company and make knives as a hobby. Um, but during this time, you know, we'd we'd always, you know, desperately wanted children. You know, you know, since we were much much younger, we we always knew that, um, and we were just working so so hard, and it just wasn't happening. Right, wasn't happening. So you know, to this point, we'd been married sort of maybe three, four, five years, um, and it, and it just wasn't happening. 
And we'd done, all, you know, we'd done the whole thing of, you know, going for tests and all that. You know, everything come back as there's no reason why, you know, it shouldn't right. be happening. And we, we didn't know what was going on. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the reasons, again, for coming to France. Was like, we need to step away from all of this because it, it's not good for us, um, both mentally, physically. And, you know, if we were to have children, what sort of lifestyle is this for them? You know, they wouldn't see us. Hmm. We were 14 hours a day out of the house, the two of us. So, yeah, the whole idea was come here for a, a much quieter life. Um, but, you know, I got the bug by then. The knives had, you know, had really come calling. And I maybe sort of two years into it, I started selling a couple of knives. Um, I'd, I did the whole Knife Talk podcast. That was, you know, that was sort of in the planning stages then as well. So, again, like I'd done with other communities, sort of infiltrate the community yeah. by finding people who were yeah, great were, in that community. Were, that's what you do. That's your move. Yeah, find people who are far, far better than you and, and you know, learn from them. Um, and before you know it, people are sort of, you know, putting you in their in their team, if you like. And, you know, that, that it's worked out more than once for me, that. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But I think, yeah, finding people to learn from was, you know, that was the whole purpose of, of the podcast, Knife Talk. Was it stressful because, you know, your guys are trying to have children and it was just not happening? Was that stressful on your relationship? No. I wouldn't say on our relationship, um, both myself and my wife, we, this is going to sound so corny. Go ahead. We're, we're like, we're best of friends. You know, we don't have like a big circle of friends. We never, I, I've never have done. And, and my wife was very much the same, kept herself to herself. Um, so we, you know, we've, we've got, you know, acquaintances and, you know, you know, friends, but, you know, you know, we're out, we're out each other's best friends. We're each other's support network, always have been. My wife's very successful at what she does, and, you know, I support her fully, and, and she supports me fully with, with knife making and any sort of endeavours that I have as well. So, yeah, we're, we're very sort of strong as a couple, so I don't think, you know, it was giving us grief as a, as a couple. Right. But it was it was just playing on our mind. You well, know, it's I stressful. Was, it is a stressful situation. You know, It's stress, massively stressful. So... Um, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit it because, you know, it's, it's, it's the way it was, but you know, we, we had a, a bunch of like failed IVF attempts right. as well. Um, four, well, no, actually the fourth worked, which is why we now have our twins. Um, you know, we, we had three failed attempts and it, it, it was hard because generally, you know, blokes don't talk about this kind of thing. Right. So, you know, my, my wife had, you know millions of books and and you know and you can also you know women will speak to each other as well about these things um but you know blokes blokes just don't and i find that really really strange um so yeah it, it was hard but um after i said three failed our fourth attempt is we were in london um my wife had a contract in london so we were there for i think for six months and we found out she was pregnant and it was like woohoo woohoo and we'd been we'd been in uh France for maybe 6 or 7 months then and in fact i was here a lot of the time on my own because my wife was working in london for this contract so i'd fly back for weekends and she'd fly back here for weekends all that kind of thing um but yeah and it's just <laughs> since you know the babies have been born everything has changed again it's like a, a complete new chapter of my life where you'll know i mean you've you've got a daughter yourself that every priority changes the minute you have you have babies um and it's just the best thing it's just yeah it's just the best thing i can't imagine the the devastation of feeling like all right well 
this is the second time maybe this will work and then getting the news that it didn't work. I can't I – mean, and then all of a sudden, like, now we got to do it again? Yeah. It's got to be yeah. just crippling. It just – it's got to be a devastating thing. Completely. And, you know, to the point where we both wanted children so, so bad. So, you know, I grew up with kids in the house and Amy's one of four. She's the youngest of four. Um, but, you know, she's got a older sister with, with kids, so we're very close with old, you know, two older brothers. Both have kids. One has twins, funny enough, and hmm. one, one of my brother has twins as well. So there's there's this three sets of twins all under 10. Is that a UK um, thing that, like, there's more than you don't just have one kid? I, I just, statistically, I, I, I don't know. Um, oh, with regards to twins? No, or just, what do you mean? Well, just, I mean, like, I'm, I'm I mean, I'm, not, I'm, in my mo- I'm on my mother's side. I'm a single kid. But like you know, hmm. in the, in you know, growing up, I knew a lot of kids who didn't have brothers or sisters. I'd say maybe two or three kids is is perfectly normal, very normal mm-hmm. in the UK. So that um, must have made you feel really, I mean, horrible if 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 it wasn't working out. Yeah, I mean, when we weren't working, you know, our favorite thing to do would be to go and see a, oh, a member of family okay. who had babies. I thought you were you going to say something else. <laughs> okay, maybe our second most favorite thing. I thought you'd be yeah, like, okay. geez, Craig, you certainly are getting loose on this podcast. Well, we're not busy. We put a lot of practice in. We did getting, put a lot of practice we're in. We're not getting busy. We're getting busy. It wasn't, geez. wasn't for lack of trying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But no, our favorite thing would be, you know, if we needed cheering up, we'd right. go and see, you know, one of our our brother or sisters with their kids. And, you know, because the kids, they just, they just made us happy. So we always knew that's, you know, definitely what we wanted to be doing. And, you know, and I, you know, I turned 40. Um, my wife, she's, she's 10 years younger than me, but, she, you know, she turned 30 and she wanted kids younger sure. as well. And, you know, she didn't want, you know, teenagers with me in a wheelchair, you know, as an old man, you know. So yeah, it was it was playing on us, and we were aware that time is ticking away, and not just time, money too, because it's it's bloody costly too. Right. Um, yeah, heartbreaking over and over again. Um, but yeah, when it happened, I, it just changed changed everything. Changed you know the way we we think about things. So we're now here, you know, the two of us permanently here in France. And we can't see us ever going back to the UK, or you know, or anywhere else. Wow. It's you know, we, we've we've made a home here, and and yeah, and our our kids will hopefully uh, teach us some French. I, it's funny, <laughs> I, you know. I remember yeah. when the the girls were born because I think Mareko and I were talking to Jared, or something like ah, that. You right. were you were you were we had just started. You changed knife talking. And you brought Mareko and I on, and then all of a sudden it's like, all right, well, I might be able to do it this time. And I think we did a couple without you. But there were a lot, mm-hmm. there were so many trips to the hospital where, you know, it wasn't going to happen, or we the babies were on their way, or wasn't, or aren't on the yeah. way. Yeah. 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 That, that was worrying. So um, Amy went into labor very, very early. Um, and yeah, it was just, yeah, she was in hospital for, you know, a long time before the babies right. were born. Um, so yeah, it was very hard. It was, it was really hard, but you know, worth, and you know, everything's changed here in France, not just because of having babies, but, um, the culture here is, is so, so different. So where we were back in the UK, we were working 14 hour days and always striving for sort of more and wanting more, you know, I, if I earn this, I'll be able to do this and then I want to earn more and, and all this kind of thing. Over here, everything is completely, everything is completely family focused. The most important thing is spending time with the people that you want to spend time with, not with colleagues. It's 
A good example, it's illegal here for your boss to email you after like 5 p.m. Get the fuck out of here, illegal. It's illegal. It's illegal. You can it's call illegal. the police. I just They'll got an email fi- from my boss. They'll be fine. <laughs> call, yeah, the they'll be fine. <laughs> call the gendarmes. Call the gendarmes. This might my boss just. That ought to be a, that ought to go well on Monday morning. You come <laughs> yeah. into work. That, and... That's a perfect example of of uh, the mentality here. It's it, work isn't necessarily the most important thing, and you know people people don't judge people on what they've got here. They judge people on you know sort of who they are, and it, and it sounds cheesy, it sounds corny, but you know we see that massively. It really is the case. Whereas you know in the UK everyone's you know the newest car and the newest everything. And that's how people are judged. Mm. Here, it it's not really is. Well, I don't know whether that's I mean, a. You can say socialism helps helps the people. Of France yes, that yeah, way, yeah. All of a sudden, yeah, they don't have as much to worry about. Yeah, and I and I don't know whether that's because we're in a small village and everybody knows each other far far more, um, or whether it's the same in you know bigger so you know Paris and Lyon, the you know the bigger cities. I don't know, but um, yeah, we love it here, and I can't see us ever ever moving away so the back to the ivf thing i've always been fascinated we have i have a few friends who've uh, have their kids and due to science and ivf it's yeah. always funny to me that it's never you when when there's in vitro fertilization it's never just one kid it's like they it's like the doctors like squirt up an extra juice because there's always like <laughs> there is more chance yeah <laughs> they do like there's always twins or triplets or it's always like a pile of kids it's never like just one little one it's so, like statistically there's there's far more a chance of multiples, they call them, whether they're twins or triplets. Um, and I didn't know anything about IVF previous to this. I was just like, you know, it's not working. And I, at first I was sort of dragged along to the clinic and I was like, oh, I don't want to be doing this. And, you know, it's embarrassing, right. you know. You, of it's, course, it's, of course. It makes you feel like less of a man because obviously, you know, the thought is people judge you. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And... You know, everybody knows this. Every knows what needs to happen. You need to go into a room with a cup, and you need to, you know, do, do what you need you to need do. Jerk off in a cup. Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. And then, so I, I'm not sure if you know about the actual science of what happens. So yeah, you grab your penis and you jerk it around a little bit. <laughs> I know you oh, know about that. Okay, bit. Oh, I okay, definitely right. know you know that bit. Sorry. He was getting a little serious. I had to do a little jerk off <laughs> joke. Come on, man. <laughs> Um, so as I said, there was nothing sort of physically wrong with, with myself or my wife. We were just sort of incompatible in that way. Um, so, so what they do is it's completely natural. There's, n- there's nothing else sort of added, if you like. So they'll take one of her eggs when it's, it's most fertile and they'll take, they'll take some of my sperm and they'll, they'll put them together, right. you know, outside of the womb. Um, like a nutri- then- nutri- shake or something like that. Exactly, exactly like one of them. They just shake it back. Um, it's and a then after the cocktail shaker, going back and forth, flipping around his back. <laughs> and then I think it's seven. After seven days, they can then see um, if if anything's happened. So what the, what they'll generally do? They'll take they'll take like a bunch of bunch of eggs and a bunch of sperm. So then you know, the, the, you know, to make the chances as best they can be. Um, so the ones then you know if if they're if they have uh, fertilized, they can then freeze them and you can use them again later or wherever it may be. Um, so, yeah, we, we tried this three times and it didn't work. And the fourth time it did. Um, and they'll say then how many fertilized eggs would, you know, you like to put back in. Jesus Christ. So, you know, and just because they're fertilized eggs, it doesn't mean it's going to become a baby. You still need so you, pregnancy you're, that is later. a crazy situation now. Yes, yes, and there's a there's a big thing about sort of ethics in the UK of um, multiple births, saying that you, you know 
clinics are being targeted. They've got targets. They need to keep their multiple birth rates low. So you get pressure from a clinic. Wait, I don't understand. What do you mean? So multiple births are, they're they're not the most healthy um, for the female giving birth. Um, So more than two. Yeah, more than more than one. More than oh, one is multiple. Okay. So two. Okay. Yeah, two is a multiple birth. Um, so they don't encourage it because um, then they're not usually as successful. Because if you imagine all these things are you know clamming for resources within you know a woman's body, um, if there's just one, it's got more chance of survival. So the the clinics have like a rate that they need to be below. So most clinics, they're you know they're really pushing for you know we can only put one in. Right. We can only put one in. And they did this, you know, for the first three times. So on our fourth time, we were, we were adamant. We were like, well, we're paying for this service. We want to put two in. And they were like, well, we can't. And we were like, well, is, is this, you know, is you can you legally not or you just advise not to, you know? And they were like, oh, okay. So anyway. Yeah, here comes the Lockwood envelope. Here comes the yeah. founder space, the founder space <laughs> header on the envelope with some cash the negotiating inside. deal. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it turns out that um, – yeah, so we had the two in, and it turns out that they were both successful. So they're, they're non-identical twins because they were both in their own sort of um, sack. Right. I've got the technical we'll term sack. for it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's quite weird how my my brother um, also had twins. Amy's brother also had twins. Um, my dad had twin brothers. So th- there's all these twins in the family anyway. But your twins were like – I mean, they were – you say, the most beautiful were, twins in the world. You're right. Course, you are right. Yes, no, yes. I'm not saying that. I'm just <laughs> saying that they're twins because you said give me two. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they – that it's come from those two. Oh, okay. So what can happen okay. is one could not make it and one could then split into two naturally anyway. Okay. okay. So there's there's okay. no real way of knowing. Okay. There's no real way of knowing. Okay. So you put two in doesn't so mean how you did have you, two. You just how did you convince them to go with two if they're saying we only do one? I can't remember. I think we we'd gotten very close with them over the time. You know, we'd been seeing them for years at this uh, point. Because, so they felt guilty. They felt know, bad. Like, ah, I think so. Just, yeah, just and we used to do this thing like before we go into the clinic, we'd we'd be out in the car and we'd be like, right then, big smiley faces. <laughs> we've got to make them like us. And we, you know, we were like the cheesy couple skipping, oh, walking boy. through the door, bringing you know, donuts. Was, oh, exactly. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, See, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, if you're nice enough, they'll give you two eggs. <laughs> exactly. If you're nice enough, they'll yeah. they'll yeah. Listen, that's what happens. All those Karens. That's the reason why those Karens can't get pregnant because they're such assholes. Exactly. You do the opposite. Look at Craig Lockwood and his wife figuring it out. <laughs> so that's it. So as I said, we're in France now, and um, my days of wanting to do more and more and more um, are completely I gone. I've I've gone completely the French way. So. I'm sitting here now. I'm sitting back. I've got a beer. And you're I'm not sitting like, back. You're running a you're running a podcast empire. I, I yeah, but that's not you know that's not you know I'm I'm just like the record label. You guys are all the yeah, talent. but you got to put it all together. You got to punch you're buttons doing all and the work. Do it. You're doing. You make it. Sound, you make us sound like we're actually professionals. People seem <laughs> to th- people seem to think you know like I I talk to people about about knife talk. I don't let them see what I'm doing. Like that, I've stopped. Mm. I'm kind of slowly, slowly making sure that people don't see how I'm being. Po- I'm podcasting because I'm sitting here. I'm sweating, and it's hot as hell in here. I'm in my car. <laughs> people seem to think when they hear it that we're like in a studio, air conditioned studio. And the reason why it sounds so good is because you've made it sound so good. 
But again, going back to what we talked about earlier, it's not hard. Anybody can do it. It just takes that little bit of thought and and putting a bit of effort into it. You know? I'm convinced. Just like we talked about cooking. Anybody can cook. It just takes thought I, and effort. See, going back to the whole thing, I'm convinced that you have something within you that makes you execute. You can come up with the idea. You can, it's, like, it's like I remember – I remember going to see some art show and a friend of mine said, I can do that. And I always say, but you didn't, you know, you, you know, mm-hmm. you say, you can say you can do things, but doing them on your own is completely different. And I think that in all your endeavors, including having twins instead of a single, you've made it happen. You <laughs> manifested itself. You've manifested these children like you've manifested everything else. <laughs> I'm super. You've probably noticed this week. I'm super competitive. If there's an opportunity to turn anything into a competition, I'm on it immediately. And I think that's from having an older brother. He's he's two and a half years older than me. So I, you know, if he was out playing football, I'd be playing football with him. And he's like, well, I need to be just as good or better, you know, at 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 anything. And I, I never was because my brother was great at sports. I wasn't. But yeah, any opportunity to turn anything into a competition, and I'm all over it. The more and more I talk to competitive people, the more and more I realize, because I've always felt like, uh, I've always felt like competition has been nothing but failure to me. And it's, it's, it's actually made me enjoy, I I don't enjoy things as much when I'm, things are competitive and I've gotten to the point where I'm very blase about everything. And it makes me feel just a little bit less anxious, like competitive, being Mm. competitive makes me very, very anxious. And I'm, I, I think that especially when you are a perfect example of someone, okay, I know you say you get competitive, even when we do the quizzes on, on Knife Talk, you're a fucking maniac. You are literally like, <laughs> like maybe better let this one, maybe better let Craig win this one, or it's going to be a miserable podcast. But, <laughs> but seriously, I think that that's part of your compulsion. I mean, you, you're, your compulsion to do all these projects. I mean, like I see every single one of these, these endeavors, regardless of whether or not you've you know, sold them or stopped them or it didn't work or it did work. These are successes of your compulsion, and I think that without the competitive nature, maybe you wouldn't have done any of them. I mean, you got on the whole app thing, and you you were on the on the first day of the new app of being able to sell new apps. I mean, I think that you're very very. There's a wisdom to um, your method. You might think that, but why am I trying to sell knives? That's it. That <laughs> you, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. And this this is. Uh, this is something that I've been interested in as, you know, as a sculptor. And I was actually talking to Jared Thatcher last episode. I think it was last episode. Or he and I actually ended up talking for another hour and a half after we stopped recording the podcast. And I was telling him that, you know, when I was selling sculpture, I can make a shit ton more money selling sculpture. But the fact remains what the fact remained that when I sell a chef's knife to someone, you're giving something, you're selling something to someone and they're actually using it to nurture the family. And I think that there's a complete different feeling when you're giving something like that to somebody and it's not about the money anymore. Mm. And I think a lot of it for me is the sort of longevity of it. So working in, you know, making digital things which can disappear like immediately, they're gone. You know, they're very disposable. And I think particularly in the tech industry where things move so fast, it's irrelevant after 18 months. But, you know, making something physical that you can feel in your hand that has a purpose that, you know, it can, it can do that ongoing over generations even. It, it could still be doing that thing. It's not disappearing. 
Yeah, and you're trying to sort of unpack me psychologically. I think you already have done, and I'm thinking, is this because I think I need to leave a mark? I've never thought of this before, but I'm thinking, is it because I, I think I need to leave a mark somewhere? I need to leave. I don't know. Do you but think yeah, that is I, the case? I don't know. I don't know, but I I do find it fascinating. Real things, you know, that that you can hold and smell, and you know, you can you can touch and feel. Well, not to mention you're an author of a few books. There's falling forward, <laughs> the pursuit of sexual purity, the purity. If you, if <laughs> you bust, <laughs> and then there's the the other altars. Uh, it's this is uh, the the roots and realities, uh, the roots and realities of uh, cultic and satanic ritual abuse, and multiple personalities. No, there's there are other Craig Lockwoods in the world, but there my are. favorite is the one who who wrote a book about about uh uh. Sex, the pursuit of sexual purity. He, he got terrible reviews on, on that. Clary Lockwood got terrible reviews on his Amazon book. You should definitely check it out. You sent me that link this afternoon, and I'm just like, oh, he's obviously Googling the shit out of my <laughs> name now. And yeah, I've, I've been sent that link before, and I was just like, oh, Jesus, why is this I mean, this it couldn't be worse. I mean, the man? only thing it could be worse is living with like an inverted penis, you know, like Craig Lockwood. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of anything worse than oh, the Jesus, sexual yeah. purity by Craig Lockwood with two terrible reviews. What are you going to do? Oh, but yeah. I, I, I think that I love the idea of – and I, my, I come from a family of narcissists, but also my father was had narcissistic personality disorder. And he felt the need to leave a mark. And he was this very successful. Mm. He was he had a, he had a, a real estate company, and he did very well with he owned bil- uh, buildings and apartments. But he was very successful in New York, uh, the Hudson Valley, making wine. And he became he was one of the first uh, winemakers in the Hudson Valley back in the '70s to make you know very good tasting, award winning wine that was well received in New York. And there was definitely this sense of leaving a mark. And I know that growing up. The concept of leaving a mark was also having children. And, you know, there's no, you know, secret here. My father had been married a few times and I, there were children from different marriages. And we're, I'm actually, I'm for, very fortunate that I'm close to both my sisters. The concept of leaving a mark and legacy was such a strange dichotomy for me because I, when I was a kid, I, my parents trying to get me to be an actor and I really didn't like it. And then I, I found that, you know, I was a good looking kid and, you know, wasn't, you know, life wasn't hard for me as being this good looking kid. And then I felt the need of needing something to be known for something else. And I thought, all right, I don't want it to be about what I look like. I want it to be what I, what I do. And to the point where the first art show I ever had was at college. And we, I made this giant, we had to do, uh, everyone had to make a life-size cow. And I made these cow, this cow, I went to the dump and I went through the, the city and they had a pile of black and white street signs and I made this giant cow wrap, made out of black and white street signs and I called it a street cow named Desire. It was an awesome <laughs> sculpture, my first sculpture. Um, my, it was like, it's, it was as, as long, the teacher was, te- the art teacher was using that for 20 years in regards to the expectations of this particular project. So I was in there for 20 years, my, that sculpture. But what I liked the most was we were, it was in the library and people didn't know I made it. So when people were going to look at it, I'd kick it hard, hard enough to jump. And I love the idea. These people were just like, what are you doing? You are a vandal. What are you doing? And I love <laughs> the idea that it had nothing, to, this piece had nothing to do with me. 
people had no idea. It wasn't a picture of, with my face on it. It was this fucking street cow named Desire, and I was just beating the shit out of it in front of strangers, thinking that I'm just this hoodlum. So you, you didn't want them to know that you'd made I it. felt that I needed to not... My, my, there was a lot of... Um, our, my family was a little bit on the um, shallow side. So my good looks were like, that's what was dependent on, you know, good looks are going are gonna to help you. It wasn't about what I said or what I did, but how I looked. So, but you knew they were going to fade, didn't you? You knew those looks were going to fade I mean, soon. no, I didn't, to be honest with you. And I was just like, I'm just going to not depend on them. You know, I, I'm like, I, I'm going to be fine. You know, I'm going to let these good looks go as far as I can. But I didn't like the fact that it didn't matter what I, my parents wanted to know what I said. They didn't care what I said. It was always my preparation or how I looked to the point where when my dad was dying, I had and I hadn't shaved. I had I had a long I had a beard. I had long hair. I was just, I don't know what it was going on. It was just like one of those things that like, you know, phase or whatever. And it mortified him. It mortified him and to the point where he was upset. You know, he was upset because he just felt like this is not my, this is not my son. And, and this is, you know, this is 15 years ago or something like that. And mm. I remember when I did shave and come back up, shaved, got a haircut, came back up. I'd had it. It's enough already. What am I doing, what am I doing with all this hair? They thanked me. His, him and his wife thanked me, and they were just so happy. They weren't happy to see me. They were so happy that I had shaved my beard and shared, cut the hair. And it, it didn't had nothing to do with what I said or what I my actions or my intentions, but it was completely about the fact that I had, you know, your father's so proud of you for that. Mm. You know, and it, it was very much along the lines of I was far more interested in, all right, well, this is not what I want. I don't want to be someone and then when you think about your legacy that's why does it even matter hmm. so did you always know what you like when you left college did you know did you get straight into sculpture do you always know that's what you wanted to do make stuff with your i hands? knew that when i when i was in college and i wanted to be an art major my dad and my my dad was very disappointed because he was an artist and he was just like, well, he wanted to send me, I wanted to go to RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design, and he wanted me to go to a liberal arts school to get a well-rounded education. He just assumed that I was going to go into something, you know. And when yeah. I told him I wanted to be a sculptor, it was just like, I might as well have told him I wanted to, you know, join the circus. You know, it was like, it was, he was quite, ups, quite upset about it. But then he said to me, he's like, all right, listen, if you're going to be an artist, you have to work for artists. So in the summertime, I had to get jobs unpaid internships thanks to my sister and my sister Jill um, had helped me get um, connected with really high level artists in New York and I ended up working as an intern for a lot of these artists and I started to learn because when you go to college and be an art major they don't tell you how to actually make money being an artist they just tell you you know your contrast and you know juxtapositions and talking about art and the yeah. sculpture itself but they didn't tell you how to do it when you get out. So I got real world experience. And then I, it got, I got even at a young, so freshman year, I started in the summers, I was working for artists and I got a feeling for what it was. And I wanted even more because all of a sudden now it's great. You can wear whatever you want and you can do whatever you want. And it's serious and it's a business. And so when I got out of college, I really had to be like, fucking go. You have to, and, and it was great. And I was good looking. And my girlfriend was at the time we were going to all these parties all the time. And it was very, uh, it was really cool. It was the late. It was the late nineties, and we were in New York City. We had an apartment on Fourteenth and First. It was the world was our oyster. She was in nursing school, 
And I was getting, we were going to parties and we were going to doing all these things and hanging out with artists. And it was really like, I mean, it was, it was incredible, but there was this definite need to be like, all right, you better fucking hurry up. This, this, this isn't going to be like, you're not going to be like sipping cappuccinos on the, in the, in the cafe and like, you know, with mm. your, your fingers out. And cause that's what doesn't compute for me because this whole, you know, being an artist and, you know, and, and that's what you wanted to be. And, you know, traditionally artists, you know, they're, they're not as driven with regards to, you know, careers maybe. You know, traditionally, you know, they can be, you know, the whole thing of the, you know, the lazy artist, right. you know, they'll just wait for, you know, inspiration to, to strike. But you seemed, you're the most driven person that I know when it comes to, you know, your business. You know, you, you schedule everything, you know, you're on it all the time. You need to be in front of your schedule and so on. So where did that happen? Where did, where does that come well, from? Well, a lot of it came from the fact that I knew when I got out of college and I had my studio, I had a studio with Jamie Montgomery, who was, who was on a few, a few episodes ago. Mm. We had, you know, there's rent. I had rent to pay with my wife and I had to split rent in our apartment. And then there was rent on my studio. And then I had, so I had to juggle a pile of side jobs in order to make it. And it was scary. It was scary having to make rent. It was scary to say, how can I make this happen? I don't want to do something else. And, and I think that the other thing was, was I had a studio. I had a great price in the studio. I had a be- great little studio in Greenpoint, Brooklyn um, with other artists and stuff like that. If you don't, if you don't take it seriously, people don't take you seriously. So I would get phone calls from my friends saying, hey, you want to go fishing or, Hey, you want to, you know, go to the bar or you want to do this. And I'll be like, no, I'm working. I ha- if this mm. if I can't make this work, I'm playing. And if I'm playing, I might as well be doing something else because I gotta make money. So it got to the point where I really felt the need for this to work. And the problem was was I was scared too, because when I when I got when I was getting married to Hillary, her family wasn't thrilled. Her I don't think that her family thought it was gonna work because I was gonna be this artist and I was a hardworking artist. But at the same time, it was like, and not to mention, I made my work was very commercially sellable because these giant lures were more objects. They weren't. I wasn't doing things that were very avant-garde. They were very like approachable. I thought that I thought I felt like at the time, especially growing up, I felt that the best sculpture, the best paintings, were approachable to people. It didn't have to be. Mm-hmm. You know, you can grow into your work, but I I think being approachable is very important in terms of like people, you know, buying your work. Um, but it was my family was scary. Hillary's family was terrified, so that's why I went to culinary school because I thought well, I better have a backup. And then that's what got me into with Charlie Palmer because I uh, I was making a table for his restaurant. I, I, they got contacted me. This company Crate and Barrel. I knew a buyer there, and they're like, well, "This company needs a, a custom table." And then when I told them I was in culinary school, Charlie Charlie, I, I couldn't meet Charlie Palmer for a meeting. He was just like, "You're hired." So he paid for my studio, <laughs> but it was like, I got out of making art completely. And it was like, it was good because money was coming in and good because I was learning all this business stuff, but I wasn't feeling, I wasn't fulfilled creative, creatively. I wasn't, and mm-hmm. the, the, the fulfillment of creativity, which you know about, doesn't necessarily mean has to be something exactly what you want to do. It's about like satisfying the goal of the particular thing. And that's yeah. where the knife making comes in because it's like, I don't need to be an artist. And and, and I always make jokes about you good knife makers, you're not artists. And I'm really saying is you shouldn't think of yourself as artists because that's how you fall into the trap of I'm a lazy, you know, I'm the lazy artist or, or the struggling artist or I'm the delicate genius and you have to let me do my thing the way I do it. 
Mm. You know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So are you interviewing like, me now? It, it, the tables have turned slightly. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. Do you see your sort of your job, what you do now? Do you see that changing over the next sort of fifteen to twenty years? Do you think in twenty years' time you'll still be going to your shop, doing what you're doing on a daily basis? I'm very fortunate because I've given myself, I've I've known my my limitations and I accept my limitations mm-hmm. and I don't see them as a failure as a man. So being able to take on a business partner like my partner, Tony Atzi, was the greatest decision I ever made in terms of this whole thing. We're, and I'm lucky. I'm lucky that we get along. And I'm lucky that mm-hmm. I believe in him. I'm lucky that he believes in me. We're friends. And I didn't think it was going to work being friends. But it's been a dream because we're constantly pushing each other to think of how we can make this thing grow. So, And how, how does that work? Because... I don't think there's many knife makers out there that have sort of a business partner who doesn't make knives. So how does well, that here's how it ha- what happened was I was doing sculpture. I did so much side, words, side work sculpture. At the last thing I was doing, I, I worked for all these steel, sculpt, steel companies, and then I worked for a carpenter, and the carpenter laid me off. And I was doing side work in a shop with my buddy John, and then I was doing shit stuff here and there. And when I started doing the knives, I thought, I can do this. I can do this, but I have to have the backing, the, 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 the mental backing of my wife. Like my relationship with my wife is the most important thing to me because it is the center of our family. It's the center of my relationship with my daughter. Everything is, I, we always talk about how my wife and I, our relationship is pivotal for everything to work. So I wanted her to feel like I wasn't crazy because she'd been seeing me in 1996 I had an art show right out of college, and she left for nursing school. I was in my underwear in the living room painting lures and <laughs> and with, with a, a James Bond movie going on. And then when she came back, I was still in my underwear, covered in paint, still painting lures with a different James Bond thing going on. And she looked at me like, what the fuck did I get? I moved to New York from Wisconsin to live with a maniac. And it was like <laughs> I had to make sure – that she felt comfortable with what I was doing. So I like kept it quiet with the knives in the first bit. And then I showed up with this stack of money and I was like, I want to do this. I can do this. We can do this. And I'm not stupid to, I don't want you to think I know business. Cause you clearly have known me 20 years. I don't, I clearly don't know business business. I want to promise you my, this is going to be serious. I'm going to find someone who can. And it was a more along the lines of me coming to the conclusion that I, Artists are terrible at business. That's why they have galleries. You know, that's why these gallerists are such scum because they comp- they're they're prostit- they're pimps and the artists are prostitutes and they don't care. So I knew that I needed this business partner and I also needed to not be this not be an employee. And I've known Tony for a long time. We ran a restaurant together. We worked in parallel. He never checked up on me. I never checked up on him. We didn't talk. We were a team because we knew we understood the goal. We understood what we needed to get to that goal. So when I had a list of people, it was just him. And I was literally like, if I can't get Tony to be my business partner, this is not going to work. Like, I was convinced. I was like, there's no other person. And in the beginning, when he first came up, he didn't want to do it. He was just like, I got too much to do. I got this business, this other web business I'm just spending all this time in. And then I showed him the knives. And I showed him what we're doing. And he just, you know, you know, it's like, it could be a lot of fun. And. And he was just like, let's just do it. And he came up a few times. We did an operating agreement. We figured it out. And the growth has been significant. And it's mainly due to 
his vision and um, also my willingness to to you know, I took on a partner. I didn't take on an employee. You know, I wanted him to feel mm-hmm. as though we're at partnerships. I don't I, invested in what you're oh, doing. Of course, yeah. that's the only. This is and and when it comes to you guys, all you knife makers out there getting employees, you're gonna have to figure out a way to make people stay. And part of that is investing in your company and being part of the business and having them give a reason for wanting to stay because otherwise they're gonna leave and make your knives. But it was, it was, I never, I never command Tony. I've never commanded him once. I never, I never, I've never yelled at him, not one time. I mean, we've been business partners for a while. I respect him. I understand. We also were not in the same building where, you know, he's in his, he's in his office or his house and we talk every day and we shoot each other jokes. And it's a, it's a, I mean, it couldn't be a better relationship. I mean, I believe in him and he comes up, he comes up with something and never neg it. I'll, even if I know that's even if I'm just like that's not what I want to do, I'll make a joke. But I'm like, that sounds great. Let's do it. And it's and nine times out of ten, it's always a good idea. And I think that I'm very fortunate because, and a lot of it's just letting go, letting go, and saying, I didn't hire you. I want you to be part of this. I want us to grow together. And I think that's yeah. very hard. I think it's hard for people to do, especially knife makers and business owners who this is their baby. You know, and, and it's like, I don't want a co-parent. So, back to the question. In 15, 20 okay. years' time, what, what do you think you'll be I'm, doing? I mean, I think Fader Knives is going to either, it's going to be around one way or the other. I mean, I'm not again, I mean, when we came up with this thing, I thought, you know, the idea of us selling it was something that we were not against. And, and I think that I want this to be a successful business. And I want this to be, I really want this to be a successful business for my family. You know, I want them to reap the rewards of this labor, you know, and I, and I think that mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't give a shit about the legacy. And, and a part of me always makes, makes the, I just think to myself, I should have come up with a name that's not Fader because they would be much easier to sell. And I don't really need to leave a mark. And it, it's the funny thing is, is I just want this, I want to be, I want to be able to provide for my family. I want to be able to help me. I want my wife to not have to work. That's my number one mm-hmm. goal. I want to be able to make sure my daughter can go to college without having a ton of debt. I want to make sure that my wife doesn't have to work and she can do whatever the hell she wants instead of doing what she's doing now, which is she's miserable. And I, I feel the pressure of this has to work. There's no plan B. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's tough. It, it's super in, – in regards to that, it's like that when you say driven, there's no plan B. I don't have time to fool around. So I think that a lot of people get a little bit like it's shit or get off the pot. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing is, if you really, you know, I say the funny thing all the time, you know, you and Mareko make fun of my age. This better be funny. <laughs> you and you and Mareko make fun of my age, which is great. I, I'll take any kind of bit you guys can do to make the podcast good. I'm funny. I'm with it 100. I never get offended by that. <laughs> I wouldn't. I think about my age a lot because I'm 46, not that old. I feel physically good. My I don't have back problems. I used to have back problems in my 30s. I feel physically strong. I feel good. I feel alert. I feel ready to roll. I'm, I, I'm, I feel as youthful as I was before, but I would mm. never trade to be a 30-year-old right now because of all the successes mm. I've made and the failures that I've made, and I've gotten my mindset to the way it is right now. At 46, yeah. I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tra- if I had to change, t- I get 10 years off, 10 years back, but I, I had to be the mindset mm. of 10 years back, I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't take it. Mm. 
I think in the last two, three years, and I think maybe since the babies have come or we knew the babies were coming, I think my sort of mental... The, the way I think about, yeah, you know, how happy I am and, you know, what I'd want to change and all that kind of thing has changed completely, completely. And I think that's down to down to the, having kids that I'm finally sort of comfortable in what I'm doing. You know, yeah. I'm like, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking for something new now. Whereas I said before, I was, you know, I had this tunnel vision, but I was always looking in the periphery for something new and shiny to take my attention away from that. I think for the first time ever, I'm completely comfortable in, you know, who I am, what I do, and you know, not trying to sort of impress people. It's just, it's, it's just what I do right. now. You know, it's, 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 you know, who I am, and yeah, completely comfortable with that. And you know, everything after a while that happens to everybody. I'm sure when you get to a certain age, you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable now. I'm, this is who I am. I'm, my identity is set. But I think even like like the podcast, like Knife Talk. I mean, I think we've been doing it for two years together, roundabouts, right. eighteen months maybe. I'd say the last maybe six months, things have like clicked, you know, and it's just got comfortable. So as you know, before I'd be nervous before, be, you know, before the show and all the rest of it, and you know, I'd say the last six months. I, now, and I do attribute it to, you know, having the babies and just being just a bit more settled. And now I can sort of breathe and relax a bit more. But I think, for example, Knife Talk, the last six months, it's just been like like a breeze. It's just been, you know, talking to friends and just being completely comfortable in. But isn't that how growth is supposed to be? I think so. And I, I yeah, I think that's what it is, just getting older and just like none of the shit i don't really care about that any of that now you know it's just yeah like you said all you care about is your is your wife and your 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 kid and and it's it happens to us all i'm sure it's funny because right now right now we did this new bit on knife talk where most of the people listening to this already know we we do this pizza bit we're we're recording this on monday so we don't really know what's going to happen but we kind of know and The funny thing is this this whole this day right here today is a stressful day for me because I'm finishing up moving my mother to a new place and then we launched this new knife. I'm getting texts. I have the, the phone is in the back of the car because I'm getting texts from from Tony and Trevor and we're like moving a ton of knives right now and and I, and I, and and the, and the funny thing is is like this is real this is what I want to be doing. This is what I want to be doing. And then I'm getting these messages from people like, hey, do you know what the poll is on your whether or not you won the pizza thing or not? And, I, and I'm like, I don't give a fuck about this goddamn pizza thing. You think, I'm, I got a business to run here. I don't care. I don't give a shit about this fucking pizza thing. And, I, and I'm like, the, the, it's, 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 and it has to do with also my age right now. And I think that I'm so much more comfortable with what I'm meant to be doing. And I think yeah. that I, 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 feel, I feel sorry for all these younger kids because they're not able to like, kind of live through failure and live through, you know, things that are working or not working. And then how you progress as a person in order for you to start to feel comfortable when you're on knife talk. You know what I mean? It's that, that mm-hmm. feeling of feeling comfortable. Yeah. Imagine being sort of being able to go back to your, you know, 10 year old self and saying, okay, Craig, you're a little bit weird. You don't really fit in with any of the groups here, but that's good. That That's like, that's a positive that is, you know, you're not following, following a crowd and doing what people would expect of you. I wish somebody had, you know, told me that because, you know, growing up, you're always thinking, oh, 
I just wasn't cool. As if that's the most important thing when you're a kid. You just want to fit in. I'm going to tell you something that's interesting in what you're saying because I had when my father died 12 or 15 years ago, I can't remember. And and that that's enough of a reason, a reason to understand what's going on. I I when I was younger, I was constantly browbeaten and told that you don't know what you're talking about or you don't know anything I said. The sky's blue, the sky's not blue. Or you don't know what you're talking about. And it got to the point where I, I was, my feelings, I, I felt like I, I don't know. Obviously, I'm not getting the confidence of being able to know what's going on. And then I had opinions about people, and I was told I'm wrong. And I had opinions of this, and I was told I was wrong. And it got to the point when my father died, I felt so guilty about young Jeff. Young Jeff, 10-year-old Jeff, knew what was going on, but he was convinced otherwise. And it was this like strange cathartic moment of being like having to like apologize. And I'm a 46 year old Jeff is apologizing to 10 year old Jeff saying you were right this whole time. And it changed my life when my father died. And I had this eureka moment. Like I knew this crazy people don't do the right thing at the end. <laughs> crazy people mm-hmm. do the same crazy shit even towards the end. And, and, and I was, and I was right about the way I felt about people when I was younger and I should have had more faith in myself. And it changed me when my dad died because I, th- I became a better father and I became a better husband and I became a better person because I didn't doubt myself and I wasn't as anxious. I wasn't as anxious about how, uh, how, how I believe I, I felt badly for my younger, younger Jeff. I felt bad. I felt bad. I felt he was, yeah. he was, he was given a, it took too long to get to that point. It took 30 years to come around saying I was fucking right back then and I'm sorry that I wasn't. Look how look how intense this got. This is like a like an episode of Frasier. Yeah. People ring up their late night phone right. call with their psychological that's right. problems. Yeah, this is we're gonna we're taking all these foster children <laughs> ideas in and we're nurturing them until they can go off. They can go off. Jeez, oh, we need a jingle or something now. Just a light I'll give you something to lighten the mood. I got a couple questions from some of the listeners. And some of the oh. questions from the listeners. The first question is actually it's a two part question. But I'm only asking you. I mean, it's a three part question. I'm asking you two questions because is it about belt progressions? Or no, it's not knife related. <laughs> no, this is you don't understand. When I did this, I'm fucking tired of answering any kind of questions that I don't even think I know half the answers to anyway. Uh, I'm taking. I'm, I put more questions on the Mareko and you can answer because I'm just like I'm just like I'll ta- I'll tap out on this one. So this one comes from Mike Nye, and the first question is: Do you have any fluency in the Welsh language? No, really. Um, I can understand if somebody speaks Welsh. I can sort of understand it. Um, what What does what the Welsh it, language sound like? Um, there's lots of <laughs> d double d's, which was a <laughs> sound and All right, so say a say a sentence. Nadoli uh, Oh, so it's kind of like Gaelic a little bit. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. It is a Gaelic language. So, so your your um, parents did your parents speak it? No, so I grew up in a city in Cardiff, which is the capital of Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales, sorry, um, which is about two hours from London. You know, quite, you know, metropolitan sort of right. area. It's, it, you know, it's a city. Um, we had to, in, in junior school, um, we didn't learn any Welsh, but in high school, it was sort of mandatory for, I think, for a, the first year. But then you have options and you can then choose French, Spanish, German, all these kind of things. And yeah, I, I didn't choose. And your mother was Welsh. too busy raising all these children to learn the language either. So exactly. And I mean, you know, in a city, you can, 
nobody, where I was from, nobody spoke Welsh. Mm. Nobody. They do now because it's become quite a trendy thing to send your kids to a Welsh-speaking school. Um, but like, but where my wife is from, which was only probably 25 miles down the road, um, it was, you know, it's considered the South Wales Valleys. It's, you know, it, to me, it was a world away from what I knew. You know, I'd, I'd never been like on a train before, before meeting my wife, because I'd always lived in the city where everything's just a walk away. You know, I, I, you know, all these different things I'd never seen, you know, wild horses, you know, where in the, the first time I went up to, to, you know, my wife's house, uh, you know, girlfriend at the time, you know, you drive over the mountain, there's all these wild horses and donkeys everywhere. And I'm just like, whoa, it's like a zoo. I didn't quite understand. But yeah, it's like five minutes from my house, there's a big roundabout and that roundabout will take you to a motorway. And what was beyond there, I didn't know. I didn't have a clue what was going on. You went from on. not seeing, not understanding or knowing trains and stuff to being one of the forefront guys on the, in the, on the internet. That's crazy. <laughs> no, it's just because I was in a city. It was, oh, okay, you know, I, 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 I didn't, you know, you get trains to go long distances. In the city, you, you just walk everywhere. You get a, a taxi. Well, his next but, question is, have you heard of uh, – well, I'm going to just preface this. There's a, I guess there's a Welsh rap group called Goldie Looking Chain. Have you heard of them? The GLC, okay. yes. He says, yes. what? Your mother's got a penis. <laughs> <So we should laughs> he finished the fucking – he just busted the – he just ruined the question. So he says, uh, what, <laughs> what is your favorite song from Welsh rap group Goldie's Looking Chain? He says, mine is Your Mother's Got a Penis. <laughs> what, is, <laughs> what is this fucking band and why does his mother have a penis? Uh, oh, they were. It's almost like a parody um, rap group. It's like it's almost comedy. So we we just mentioned the Welsh language. So where my wife was from, we didn't quite finish that. But they 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 speak a lot more Welsh there in these sort of rural areas. So my my wife can speak a little bit and understand a lot more. But anyway, the GLC they're from um, a city in called Newport, which is like the second city in Wales. Like Cardiff is the capital. Then you have like Newport, which is maybe fifty miles um, east of east of right. Cardiff, and um, they've got a very particular accent in Newport, in Newport. It, that, that's the way they'd say it, and uh, it's quite comical just to hear them talk. That the, the, like the rhythm and the tone, it, it, it's it's quite different. So yeah, there's this rap group, and there, there's about fifteen of them in the in this rap group, and they released a couple of albums, and they're almost comedy albums. So. Um, do you know the the Jay Z and Alicia Keys uh, Empire yeah. State of Mind? I'm from New yeah, yeah, York. Yeah. They did a version. I'm from Newport, and uh, it's just it's just, it's just really really. Fun. I'll send you the the well, YouTube video. For is that, that similar? Who's it's, the comedian it's, who works with? G- oh, there's a comedian rapper who works with Ricky Gervais, and he did. Um, I guess when they did the second David Brent movie, he was like, ah, oh, yeah, he did. But yeah, no, no, th- this is purposefully funny and they you know they exaggerate everything on purpose you know what they're wearing and i gotta hear i gotta hear them because this particular i don't remember the guy who did the he did they did a they did a song called uh i remember you remember there's a david bread song it was about oh it's called it was equality, equality street, street. i swear to god one, i yeah. must have watched equality street a hundred times <laughs> it is but that's quite that's done quite professionally, and it's almost a bit tongue-in-cheek. You're thinking, you know, is this real or is it a joke? GLC, they're, they're, it's completely Oh, but I mean, but I mean the Equality it, Street like is a totally, like, a joke. Yeah, I su- yeah, I suppose. I su- yeah. But yeah, GLC, uh, I'll, I'll send you a link to them. So, 
They, Your mother's uh, got I'm a penis Newport is a very song. popular song with the kids. It, it, yeah, there, yeah, I think it is. All right. Well, <laughs> the next question comes from the uh, undisputed champ, Mike DePel. Um, he says, "I'm very curious how the twins behave. My turn. My twins turned two this March. My girl is obedient, but the boy is sent straight from hell most days." <laughs> They are completely different. They don't look alike. Um, it's almost like uh, Molly has got all of my DNA. She she looks like me. Exactly um, like you. She's got the mannerisms of like my grandfather. It's it's really spooky, really spooky. Whereas Daisy, she's all Duggan, which is which is Amy's side of the family. It's it's spooky. It's spooky to the point where Amy's brother, who's got twins. Um, they're not identical, but they look very much alike. It's like Daisy is like the third one. They're, they're the spit of each other. But even the way, you know, Amy's, you know, really into books, you know, a very sort of bookish right. person, and you, she'll, you'll find her, you know, sitting in the corner reading a book any given opportunity. But even as a baby, Daisy's the same. She, she'll have a back to everybody. She'll sit in the corner with a back to everybody reading a book. Whereas Molly, <laughs> she's like, she's making a noise. She's got the drum set out. She's bang, bang, look at me, look at me, you know. It's, they're completely different. But they're both very well behaved. But I wouldn't say one is more naughty. They're, one day one will be naughty and the next day you'll be the other one. It's, they're, they're they are incredibly the sweet children. Molly looks so much like you, it's spooky. It's it is super spooky. spooky. The, the mannerisms and the way she looks, it, yeah, it is quite scary at times because people always say that I'm like the double of my grandfather. But to me, she is my grandfather. It's so, so spooky. So spooky. Next question comes from Adam Cipher. Adam Cipher, P.S. Adam Cipher gave me a couple questions that I'm going to rotate through every episode. They're, they're really, really good. Um, Adam Cipher asks, uh, this is a question for Craig. I want to know what's your worst failure. Ooh, worst failure. Hmm. That's a good question, man. I was thinking about it that. It is. It gets you thinking that, that one. I was thinking about that too. Wow. Um, I think failure to certain certain friends in the past, where I've just let friendships go. Um, yeah, and I and I wish I hadn't. You know, you know, we hadn't no falling out or anything, but you, you just fade off over time. Yeah. You know. Um, and I think that that's a massive failing. I mean, socially, I, yeah. I think, yeah, let, letting go of certain friends, that kind that's of thing. That's a pretty easy failure. I wasn't, you didn't, you yeah, didn't give me, I, th I think everybody you, yeah, you probably, probably me, has you that. Me, but, you yeah. didn't give me the goods. I was going to tell you one of my failures, I feel like a lousy son. I feel one of my failures is I didn't give myself all the, the tools I needed when I was younger to be more successful now like I, I i i feel like i failed myself in terms of school i feel like i failed myself in terms of i was i was so girl crazy that i let myself not do well in school and it took me going to college to and to have the mindset of you're taking someone's spot and if you don't do a good job you're wasting the spot that someone else could take it, it took me yeah. too long to get I, to that point i do sort of feel that as well my sort of 17 to maybe even 30 it was all about you know having a good time and, and all that kind of stuff and I, I just i don't regret that though because that's it's quite formative and i think 
you know, I, I know of you know certain friends who they were you know very sort of quiet and they hit their forties and then they went off the rails then and it's like whoa that's the wrong time to be going off the rails you want to get that done when you when you're seventeen eighteen nineteen the off the rails things so I don't regret any of that scares me it scares me because I feel like it's such the off the rails and I'm talking about people with like dependency it's hmm. such a giant part of your you know your ability to have a successful life. It scares mm, me yeah. the thought of like there is something out there that could dominate your life to the point where it's going to infringe on the little time that you have. I was talking earlier about how I feel 46, I feel good, I feel strong, I feel good. Of course, I'd rather have a couple of years back in terms of the physical physicality of it. But the thought of like losing time because mm. I'm addicted to something or because I've allowed myself to get in that position, it's, that scares the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah. And... I, I've got a very sort of addictive personality. If I'm into something, I'm 100% into it. And I've never, ever taken drugs. Ever, ever. Not not even smoked. Because I know if I did, it would be the downfall you of me think, completely. You think that completely. you really think that you'd have had a problem? I think so. I th- I do. Because, yeah, anything that I do... Holy cow. I'll do, I'll do, I'll do everything I can to be the best but- at it. So if that were to be taken drugs, so you think I'd want you, to be the best person to you take think that drugs. You, you honestly have the fear that you won't try anything because you think that you're just too addictive? I think so, yeah. Do you think that addictive I, yeah. isn't just, is more about like how you deal with things as opposed to like I always I, I talk to my wife about addiction. She deals with people with a lot of addiction all the time. And part of me thinks yeah. that like you're when you're dealing with addiction, a lot of times you're looking for uh, with addiction in terms of alcohol and drugs, you're looking for more of a paradise. You're looking to be taken away from you're t- looking to be taken away from a bad situation and you're trying to find a degree of, of, of paradise. Or you're taken away, like I said, you're being taken away from a bad life for even that moment. But if, you're, if you already had, everything's all good, would you still have that addiction? Yeah. Um, Look at you, you're, ter- that, I've, you're I've terrified. Got, I've, I've, <laughs> I've got a family member who's got a, a, you know, a serious addiction right. and it, and it, it causes huge problems within, within the family, and not you know not just to immediate family, but to to everybody around. And everybody is walking on eggshells, and you know it's, it's something just to think about. Messy, messy situation. I think I, I couldn't be going Dang. down. Put other people through. Look this, at you. Yeah. You you know you you know yourself. I, I the only <laughs> thing I ever was addicted to is I was addicted to cigarettes. Cigarettes were mm. were were tough to shake, but. It was it was it was a mental decision to say I it's enough I'm not gonna I want to be the slave of these goddamn things and I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Okay. Let's have a lighter question. It's gotten so intense, Craig. So so deep. intense. Wow. Is this okay? Are you having a good time? Okay. Yeah, all good, all good. I've got a beer on the go. Oh, look happy. at you, addiction. Yeah, just the one. Yeah, no, just the I'm one. Addictive personality. He's got a <laughs> listeners. He's uh, also built a kegerator down in his basement. He's like he's got he's on the he's on the tit all the time. He's on the tit oh, all the time. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> this one comes from Jay Custom Knives. Here's a question for the next show. If you had to eat the same meal for dinner every day, what would it be and why? What oh. would it be and why? Every, every day. day. Okay. Let's fucking say pizza. Let's be... fucking say pizza. I swear to no, God. No, I'm going to end this podcast so fast. This week. You're going to make your head spin. It would need to be so. I, th- I think breakfast cereal, something Whoa. simple, really easy and light. I mean, you wouldn't get sick of breakfast cereal. 
I'm sick of it already. No. We just talked about it for a minute. No, no, not no. I'd be quite happy with that. I'd be quite happy. Oh, a man of um, t- simple tastes, Craig Lockwood. Again, going back to this whole addiction thing, food is my biggest vice. Yeah, but really then why is. would you? I, I'm amazed that you would say cereal. You're looking for. Because, you're looking for. You're you're not. You're not just going out and saying I want something delicious. You're saying what could I handle for the rest of my life? Exactly. That's the thing. What could I handle? Exactly. Yeah. I would yes. definitely pick sushi. I can eat sushi really? day, yeah. morning, noon, and night. I never get sick of it. I, I love everything about it. It's the perfection of simplicity. There's nothing more mm. simple than sushi and delicious. Like I'm, con- yeah. I'm obsessed. I, lo- I love Indian food. Indian oh, food. Really? But, but you know, but you know that for you every do meal, that every every I, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it exactly. So yeah, something, something breakfast cereal, nice and light. So what's the next step for you and the Makery Network? Let's talk about the Makery Network for a little bit. This is amazing. Yeah, sure, sure. This is down to you. This is down to you. So, Knife Talk's yeah. going well. You know, we had a good audience. Great audience. Um, great audience. And, you know, they get involved right. in the show. Um, it's all good. Um, but I, I enjoy, like, that side of things, the like the production side of things. So, you know, our show is different to most of the podcasts. You know, we fit it with jingles and we have these silly bits and we have these sections. We also have three different characters. Like the three of us massively are different. massively yes. different, which yeah. all, all of a sudden you kind of, you automatic, you, you know, very subtly, you know who everybody is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I just enjoy it. I enjoy, you know, doing the show. I enjoy, you know, speaking to you guys. I enjoy, you know, the marketing. I enjoy the, you know, the the back end of it, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, th- I think you, I think you'd said maybe, maybe about a year ago even. You know, you should. You should I've do been network. hounding you. you. More, more people. Involved. I've been hounding you for yeah. a long time. I, this is. I've been slowly, slowly feeding you this bullshit because I all I wanted you to do is this is this podcast, and I thought, oh, how am I going to figure out how we can make some money? <laughs> you could have just learned to. Edit I didn't want to do it. It was quicker. too much. I know I could have, but I was just like, I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> so I had this idea of. Um, First of all, it was going to be like a like a not a YouTube network, um, but you see, so I I gained so much value from YouTube from learning from other people, and I know a lot of the people they're not you know they're not earning enough money from it because YouTube takes a big cut and you, you know you need you need to be a serious player on YouTube to be to be making money. Um, so you start to see people using things like Patreon and all these different things that are almost like bolt-ons that they're using, you know, to to earn money from the YouTube content and. I find it really weird that that Google, who you know, who owned YouTube, haven't built in that mechanism, you know, where people can have private videos and people, you know, pay to watch these or subscription based, so they'll get you know a small cost per per user per month. And I was thinking, well, I should build that because I've got the skills right. to do it. I should I should just build this platform, and it can be built sort of on top of YouTube, so people don't have to you know upload elsewhere. YouTube will do all the, you know, the hosting of it, which is the costly part. Um, and that was going to be called The Makery. And, you know, I, I sort of started and I built like a really rough beta of it. And, you know, but then I was just thinking that could be pulled from under me at any point. YouTube could then say, you know, they've got they've got the keys. They could say this isn't happening. So, you know, all the work that I'd put in and any sort of investment that any creators would put into this platform would just be gone overnight. You know, and that's not unusual for YouTube to do that kind of thing. So then I so I sort of put the you know 
put the sand on that fire and said that's not really going to happen. And it was playing in my my head about you saying doing a you know a network for podcasts. So I thought, yeah, let's let's do it. So you know, you were straight in. You were like, yeah, well, I, I want to do one. And um, you know, a bunch of you know really great people um, approached me. I approached some as well. Um, and we've got, I think there's, I think there's eleven shows at the moment. We've got another one launching um, Tuesday. Um, so that'll be 12 and there's another four or five, which is sort of early stages. They've got the idea and, you know, we're sort of talking through how it'll work for them. Some big so names I, too I think, coming down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And I think podcasting is, it's, I, I love podcasts because it's, it's that thing where you can just go off into, if you're doing something particularly work or driving specifically, Put a podcast on, and the journey just right. goes. You're in your own little, your own little world, and you know the host is speaking to you directly. I, I love podcasts, and I think, you know, as as much as you know, I love the purity of it. It's just, it's just a voice, and people are talking. It's going to be commercialized massively, you know, in the in the coming. Everybody knows about you know the Rogan story with Spotify, right. and they pay him this fortune. You can only be on that platform. The great thing about podcast is it uses like an rss feed so you, know, you can use your own podcast player for it and you can do all these things um but somebody's going to make a, a shit ton of money out of this very very soon and i was thinking well let's get on that yeah. bandwagon no <laughs> listen when i came when i came to you even early on i'm con- i was always convinced i remember i when i did my first podcast with my buddy nico we this is like 15 10 years ago at least 10 years ago he and yeah. I were talking. We were talking to his friend Darren Aronofsky, who's the 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 film fil, the film guy, the director. And he was like, "Yeah, you should listen to our podcast." And Darren's like, "What's a podcast?" You know. And it was like, it was very clear to me because I used to listen to Rogan in the beginning when he was was it was awful, and hmm. I always knew this is going to be the greatest thing in the world, and because you're going to hmm. allow people to have a companionship, which I'm convinced that that's really what podcasting is. It's companionship. Yeah. It- to me, it's a radio show where you're in control. You listen to what you want, whenever you want. There's no schedule. You know, at, at 11 o'clock, we've got the weather. At 12 o'clock, we've got traffic news. And I always found that really weird with TV, you know, back in the day where, you know, we had five channels. And it was just like, well, you know, I wouldn't be able to see all this content right. at the same time. And, you know, I can't stay up till 11 o'clock. I'm nine years right. old. And, and you know, you know, cable and, and you know, pay-per-view and all that has changed the way tv works well radio is changing just as quick and that's due to podcasts and most radio stations now have their own podcasts of you you know you can listen to either the breakfast show at, at midnight if you like um it's just the way things are going people want to listen to content when they want and in the way they want can i just say that i don't understand what the the i th- always thought i mean i was such a huge fan of radio i didn't mm. understand how the people behind radio didn't capitalize on the fact that there is something valuable about listening to something live. That's the one thing I hate about podcasts is, you know, you're listening to this at least on Friday and we recorded it five days ago. Listen, yeah. I've been in, I've witnessed and listened to things on the radio that happened live that changed my life. I mean, I heard nine 11 on the radio, like I, when it was happening, you know, we were in the car and we were at the beginning when they first heard, thought it was a small yeah. plane. And I, re- I remember when Howard Stern talked the guy off of the George Washington Bridge. I was listening to that. I was riveted. You have these mm-hmm. moments where 
you are connected to something and you're part, you're part of a, a team. You're part of, not a team, you're part of something special. It's the same thing when people get pay-per-views because you're witnessing yeah. something and you're part of that. I never could understand why radio couldn't capitalize on that. Now it's going to, now it's all going to these uh, digitized things. So, yeah, it's the same as print newspapers, you know, they, they haven't moved with the times and they're all slowly moving, you know, shutting their doors or the, or they're going online and they're just filling their pages right. with ads. So you can't even, you know, the main purpose of, you know, of a newspaper is to is to read stuff. But you, you go online, you can't read the articles because it's just full of ads and it's just, they're scrambling. And just to let the listener know, please don't send me any more emails or DMs trying to get me to convince Craig to let them have a podcast on the Makery Network. <laughs> You have no idea how many I get of those I get, and I do not forward you them any of them because it's just like I'm not. This is we're, this is not. Don't put me in this position. I don't want it. Yeah, I get a lot, but I've got this this response, um, which basically says, you know, it's going to need a commitment, and this commitment is, you know, a show each week. Um, and you know, it's not as easy just turning on a mic. You need to plan for these shows, and and that's what I'm really proud of actually with with the Makery. Every show, the audio is super crisp, super good. It's all it the the content is just brilliant on every show. You know, they they all work. So I think just by telling people this that you know there's a lot of work involved and there's there's a commitment to a show every week it filters out the people who so, aren't serious all right let's say some jerk off sends you says i can understand i'll do it i'll do it half an hour a week no problem how are you if they oh you got to send me three tapes and then what if it sucks what are you going to say how are you going to let them down are you going to send them to me to let them down how are you going to let these I people fuck? I you you got to figure something out because I'm, I don't know, a couple guys are just like, oh, I got this great show and you got to let me, you got to listen to it. You're going to love it. And I'm just like, I know I'm not going to love it. Yeah. I haven't got to that point yet. I, I've had plenty of people coming to me who already have a podcast and saying, look, could we, you know, could we be part of the network? Um, and you I, gotta have, you, you know, have to I, figure sort of something out. You got to figure out a way. I've had to politely say that I don't think it would fit because I don't want, the, like, for example, the makery to be full of, knife related right. stuff or i don't want to be full of you know what whatever fabrication right. stuff because you know we fill that gap as knife talk and you know fabrication the guys that making it they, they you know that they fill making they, they it fill that there's sorry um is, did you just did everything. you just give it is that, a, is that a is that a hint no sorry make everything i meant the you mean handmade people think now that Jimmy Duress is coming here, and he let's just not. No, no, no. Just, I, sorry, I'm, I'm just getting names made up. It's handmade. It was going to be called making everything, but now it's called handmade. Sorry, which is Chris Seth. Yeah, you, all of a sudden, everyone's calling. Everyone's going to call up fucking <laughs> Jimmy Duress and say, said. "You're going to the Makery Channel." Oh my god! <laughs> no, that was just a slip right. of the tongue. I, I mixed up two two words there, but um. Yeah, so you know, I think everybody's going to on the network will have their space, and I don't want anybody else sort of right. you know infringing right. on that we don't want you know we'd want a network of knife making, sure. making podcasts of course you know, we just want the, we just want the best knife so i'm just trying to figure out want... a way to let people not send me the dms and you the dms because <laughs> we don't have a system in plan because i feel like i'm kind of on the board of directors of this whole thing so i do have some degree <laughs> of 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 opinion so we have you and i have to figure out a way to let people down without having them to you know we should we should get them to record a youtube video and put it up, and we share that and see what people think of it. Oh my god, that's what's going to have to be. Yeah, you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to put yourself out there. 
That's going to uh, be great. But I remember as a kid, I remember like sending tapes off to radio stations of me with like two tape recorders, play a song, talk in the middle of it, then play another song on the other one and rec- try and record it all together. And and to me, this is that's what we're yeah. doing now. We're just we're just having fun with you know speaking into a mic and so on. So yeah, I I really enjoy doing it. Um, it but people probably don't realize what the the outcome of of the makery is. So what the purpose is so to make money. The most obvious, well, the most obvious one really <laughs> is that you know the shows can sort of bolster each other. You can go to one place, which is makery network, and discover a bunch of podcasts if you're a maker. You know, and maybe they don't all you know, sing right. to you. You don't, you don't want to subscribe to them all. But, you know, if you're a maker, they're, they're, they're sort of filtered out ready for you, that the show's ready for you. Um, but also, as, you know, we've done it with Knife Talk. We, we, we've run ads and, and that kind of thing. If we've got a bigger listenership, which we would across a network, we can attract more ads. So we always knew it was going to take a little bit of time before ads will come. And I've just signed a deal just last week uh, with a big ad agency. So, yeah, there's going to be ads starting That's to appear news. on the um, – It's big news. And it's, 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 it's a weird thing because – weird for me. I'm ready. I'll sell. I'll sell whatever <laughs> the fuck you want. I love it. Well, th- these won't be ads that the uh, people yeah, read. These will even be, better. you know, localized ads. So – at the beginning of the show and at the end of the show, you will hear an ad. And it could be for your local steakhouse. It could be for your local barber. Um, the joy of, you know, the way technology has moved is that your podcasts, uh, the player that you use, they know they know who you are. You know, it's like when you Google something. They know exactly who you are anyway. Um, you know, where you are, what your favorite breakfast cereal is. They know all this stuff. So at least this way, the ads will be targeted to you and they'll be of value. They're not, you know, they're not trying to sell you, you know, the latest bra if you're a 40-year-old guy. They're trying to sell you uh, something that a 40-year-old some, guy some, is into. Some of my listeners got some big old titties. I mean, they might. <laughs> you never know. And with... uh, so that's that's the idea behind the makery. And, um, yeah, it's it, I'm just blown away by the content. It's brilliant. And um, there's more to come. And to quote the unsinkable Craig Lockwood, that's a show. I cannot thank you enough. You are my friend. I, You and I have been talking for a long, long time, and I love everything that you have done and do. I'm very impressed with the person that you are. I'm very lucky to call you my friend, and it's a total pleasure. The pleasure is there all you go. mine. Now, listen, everybody. If you want to help me out, you can go to... The Full Blast podcast on Instagram, and that's how you. <laughs> I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna say go to Knife Talk Stories and vote for my pizza. Ah, it's over. I'm done with it. I'm trying. I'm too busy getting texts about making money. I don't worry about that fucking pizza. Whatever happened, happened. I don't give a fuck. Congratulations to whoever the winner was. I'm sure you know. You will all talk about it on Monday. But um, yes. yeah. So go to the go to uh, the Full Blast pod. I mean, what's the point of talking about voting for a pizza now? It's all in the past. It's all what happened. It's not going to help anybody. So go to um, Full Blast Podcast on Instagram. Give me a follow. Uh, you can DM questions for future guests. I got great guests all the way through October, Craig. All these people want on. Everyone's going to come on. Who have you well, got? Uh, next give, week, give I got uh, Quentin Middleton's coming on, who we should have interviewed on Knife Talk, but we just didn't, mm-hmm. wasn't in the cards. Quentin Middleton's going to be on. 
Uh, I just talked to Will Stelter. Will Stelter's definitely going to be on. Jesse Savage, uh, Cliff Dufton. Uh, I got the uh, the English guys are going to be on. We got uh, Steve, the St- Heathen Steven, Heathen Steven from Moonshine Metalworks and beyond. Um, Craig McAfee is going to be on. Uh, my my bad. My man Skull and Spade Thirteen is going to be on. Um, I got a pile of people. Mareko's going to be on. And then I'm getting, I'm tr- and uh, I got a pile of people. What I'm trying to do is talk to people that I've already had conversations with because I'm trying to create a little bit more chemistry in the con. And then I'm going to start getting in other people. I got a message from somebody who said, You got a lot of really great guys. When are you going to talk to some normal people? And I'm like, They're very kind. I just, <laughs> I need to talk to people I've actually talked to before just because I'm awful. So, I, w- I want to hear you speak to Toma. Oh, we're going to talk to Toma. I've talked to him. Tom- Toma fascinates me, like what he's doing. And I'm talking yeah, to, I, I love, love to Toma. You know that. Yeah, I, he, yeah. It, thanks to Knife Talk is how I introduced, he introduced me to him. And he is one, he is my brother. I love that guy. I will definitely, he's, and I have talked, I'm going to pump him full of espresso and, because he's a little <laughs> bit quiet, but I'm definitely going to talk to Toma. He's on the list. I got a great list. So, so go to iTunes, uh, subscribe to the Full Blast Podcast and all the other podcasts on the Makery Network. Uh, leave a five-star review. One of you motherfuckers left a two-star review. Don't think I didn't see it. I'm going to get you. I'm going to find out who you are. I'm going to fuck you up. And then I want you to tell your friends. <laughs> tell your friends about it. Once again, the unsinkable Craig Lockwood. This has been the Full Blast Podcast. Arrivederci. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.